Don't aim to be the best. Aim to be the only. Hey, everybody, welcome to the podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Kevin Kelly, a true pioneer in the world of technology and media, here to help us make better sense of our confusing present and to share an admittedly optimistic gaze into the future. In the end, it's only gonna be the optimists who are gonna shape our culture. So you wanna be on the side of the optimists to make your vision possible. Kevin is the co-founder of Wired Magazine, widely recognized as the Bible of the digital age. He's also a renowned futurist, an author, a public speaker, whose insights into the world of technology and its impact on society have been widely sought after and deeply, deeply influential. Over the course of his career, Kevin has authored several seminal books, including Out of Control, The New Biology of Machines, Social Systems and the Economic World, and What Technology Wants. He has also been a prolific writer and commentator on a wide range of subjects related to technology, culture, and society, and has been a regular contributor to publications including the New York Times, The Economist, and Scientific American. In today's conversation, Kevin shares a hopeful vision of the future of technology and how it will continue to transform our lives and transform our world for the better. In addition, we discuss Kevin's latest book, which is called Excellent Advice for Living Wisdom I Wish I'd Known Earlier. And the book, as predicted, is excellent. But first, let's acknowledge the awesome organizations that make this show possible. We're brought to you today by Brain FM. You know that thing when you have a bunch of intense work that you just have to do, but the mind doesn't really wanna do it? You're telling it, come on, focus, but it keeps getting distracted or agitated by nonsense. And you go through this painful sort of mini war to rein it in, to settle it down and just concentrate on the thing. Wouldn't it be great if there was something that would ease or eliminate this process? I don't know, like something you put in your brain through your ears? That would be great. And the good news is that it does exist. It's called Brain.fm, which is this sonic platform that leverages science to create tunes specifically crafted to optimize brain performance for a specific task. Tunes that contain patterns that shift your brain state with something even more effective than binaural beats called neural entrainment so that you can more easily focus on that thing or lure you into the sleep that persistently eludes you. Personally, I notice it the most when I sit down to write. Typically, this experience floods me with anxiety and a near lethal dose of the big R resistance that Stephen Pressfield talks about. But now I pop on the headphones, I dial up brain.fm, click the focus feature, and the process becomes, I mean, look, writing is still hard, but now it really is so much easier to get into that state of flow and stay there. So if you're ready to unlock your focus and productivity, I've got a special offer just for you. I asked them to give my listeners 30 days free and you can get it at brain.fm slash richroll. I bet you'll love it just as much as I do. Okay, this is a powerful exchange about where our new world of technology is heading. And my hope is that Kevin's words help brighten how we're thinking about a future that is so rapidly evolving. And above all, 
helps to prepare all of us for the inevitable changes on the horizon. So without further ado, please enjoy me and Kevin Kelly. Well, Kevin, it's an absolute delight to meet you. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this, to coming down. Uh, I've been looking forward to this for a very long time. And uh, I gotta tell you, I'm a little bit, uh, I'm a little bit like nervous. My outline is like 10 miles long. There's just so many things I'd like to talk to you about. I'm sure we'll get to 5% of them today. Um, but I guess my head is is just jumbled with, too many ideas, but I can't, uh, I can't begin without acknowledging this collection of extraordinary books that are on the table right now. If you're watching on YouTube, you can see them, this series of three volumes uh, called Vanishing Asia, these beautiful coffee table books chronicling uh, the photographs that you've taken over many decades of your experience in, in Asia. And we were just chatting before the podcast, uh, you know, kind of going through them. And it's really quite a, spectacular kind of, um, uh, I guess, you know, history of not just um, certain cultures, but also I think in many ways, and I've heard you talk about this kind of an important document of disappearing, uh, you know, aspects of, of these cultures that, you know, are quickly diminishing and, and part of your motivation being like, I just wanna capture these on film before, they, you know, they become something of a bygone era. Yeah. So thank you for having me. And it's a real joy to be able to share some of this work and other things that I'm up to, but the Vanishing Asia books that you're talking about have been a 50 year compulsion. I guess really honestly what it was to kind of document these vanishing mm. Ceremonies and traditions that I have witnessed, and I've had sort of the pleasure of witnessing in some cases because they are no longer being done, at least the way that they were. And um, I, again, had the privilege of seeing the world at a moment when it was very easy for someone like me with no money to get to these really remote places that had not changed very much. Now they have. Mm-hmm. They're kind of on a future trajectory like the rest of us. Um, so this was my um, passion project to to document these things, and uh, we did a Kickstarter program to um, help make copies of them available. And um, I'm just really glad that I can share it with other people who might enjoy them as much as I do. Mm-hmm. So your relationship with Asia goes all the way back to your youth, right? Like yeah. you have cut a very interesting and unique mm. path, uh, sort of, you know, orthogonal to, you know, the traditional notions right, right. of what a young person is is meant to do <laughs> in order to be upwardly mobile mm-hmm. and kind of, you know, headed off into the, into the wilderness yeah. with your backpack uh, to explore the world in a very kind of Jack Kerouac yeah. sort of way. Yeah, I, it was very, maybe say uh, unintentional. I, I didn't have grand plans. I was inspired by the Whole Earth catalog in high school to, it gave me permission to kind of invent my, my life, to invent your own life, that you had permissions because until that moment, I hadn't really met anybody who wasn't following the same, you know, progression of things, high school, college, mm. work for a corporation. Um, the idea of being able to do something was really not an alternative. The hippies were beginning to kind of pioneer one of those. And I said, okay, I think I see other people that I admire who are going a different direction. That means it's possible. 
Mm. And I wound up in Asia without the faintest clue about what it was or I, I never eaten Chinese food, never held chopsticks. It was very parochial at the time. And so it kind of just blew my mind in terms of the possibilities and the, the otherness and the differences were very, very prominent. And it was very welcoming and it was very cheap. And so I had a home there to explore and that's what I did for my twenties, basically. Yeah. So it was an ex- It wasn't just taking a gap year. You were there for back and forth for, for, <laughs> gap, for many gap years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. And then my gap decade. Um, well, you know, if if they'd had a gap year at that time, if that was a thing, or even an internship, mm-hmm. you know, I would have done that and probably gone back to college. But because there wasn't, I, I dropped out, and I roamed around Asia, and I say kind of tongue in cheek that. You know, after a decade or so, I I gave I awarded myself an honorary degree in Asian studies because uh-huh. I felt like okay, I, now I know something. Yeah. But those experiences are are or, or or were truly formative in in your worldview and also in the advice that you now dispense to younger people about what's important, mm. what you should be thinking about, what you shouldn't be concerned yeah. about in terms of pursuing you know, a meaningful life. Yeah, I mean, the way I might reduce it now, all those years of experience and travel is in your 20s, try and spend some time doing something that looks nothing like success. That's kind of crazy, stupid, weird, orthogonal, unprofitable, um, crazy, um, maybe dangerous. Um, and, and that experience is likely as unsuccessful as it might look then to become the touchstone for mm-hmm. your success later on. It will become really, really important to you if you're able to do that. Yeah, I uh, I did the opposite and and, uh, and regret it deeply. Um, I wish that I had had such a broadening experience in yeah. my youth, especially now in my you know mid to late fifties, looking back, thinking yeah. why didn't I do that right? But yeah. when you're in that moment and all the social pressure and all yeah, the yeah. messaging that you know you're on the receiving end of. Is 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 sort of incentivizing you to do the opposite. So you really have to, you know, buck you tradition. Do. And yeah. there's a lot of you know parental and social you know pressure that 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 militates yeah, against yeah. this. So it's, it's not really it's really a courageous act. In fact, the more kind of the more successful you are in school, the more there is a kind of outward pressure for you to follow that and, and take advantage of your kind of um, your good scores, your good grades. But I actually. Um, my son and my kids went through the same thing of college prep and all this stuff, and they were on their way to college. I went to college, and that was another story. But I were did try to talk them out of it. I did. <laughs> so, so it's like the kids always do the opposite, right? No, exactly. <laughs> so my, my wife is Chinese, and so she's uh-huh. you know education all the way. Yeah. And it's the one thing we disagreed about because I was off to the side saying, you know, you don't really have to go to college. <laughs> right. But here's the thing: is like if if you have uh, an alternative, if you have a program you want to do, if you have a travel, if you have something you want to work on, make it a program for us and we'll support that. But if you don't have that, then you have to go to college. Mm-hmm. And to my surprise, all three went to college and it's like, that would not have been what I would have done, but they yeah. went to college. But after that, um, our son was doing some things. He wanted to get a job and he said, look, you need to spend at least a year goofing off and doing nothing. 
because you, for your entire life, you've been like getting grades and working hard and all this kind of stuff and you've graduated. It's like, you have to goof off for a while. And so he was thinking about getting an MFA in art. And then, so he's decided to, to give himself his own MFA to make a little program where he did art for a year and then wrote up a thesis at the end and made a kind of like a PhD project out of it mm. and gave it to his other art professors at school to read. And so he awarded himself an MFA, which I thought that was exactly what he needed to do. Yeah. And that was so good for him in many, many ways. It's so hard to see when you're at that age, how important that sort of goofing off time yeah. is, because it does feel like squandered time when your peers are kind of escalating up the corporate yeah. ladder or, or, or what have you. And there's an inherent tension or a conflict between the incentives of our modern developed world, which mm -hmm. are pushing us in a certain direction to become productive and um, you know, independent financially and, and, and contributory. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, you know, and I'm sure you would agree and you're a product of this, the most interesting people that have the most to contribute are the people that, that, that took that you know, less beaten path right. and went deep into exploration and spent the time in rumination and experience yeah to come out of it more robust and with uh, a set of, of seemingly, you know, not connected <laughs> skills right, 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 right. that somehow later in life all congeal to make them, uh, you know, kind of truly the only person who can speak to a certain sure. issue or, or an expert in a field that yeah. maybe nobody even thought would be right, a field. Right, right. It's, it's really clear right now that the major engine of wealth, and I would also, uh, to just personal happiness is is um, being able to think different. That's that's the engine. And when we're when we're all connected twenty four hours a day around the world with our little devices, the the true value is being able to think a little differently. That's the source of innovation. That's how you make great things. That's how you make great art. And um, anything that can help you think differently, including AI, which we'll talk about later, mm -hmm. I'm sure. But travel and other experiences doing, having, uh, reading different books than other people read. I mean, there's lots of ways to do that, but you want to really cultivate that ability to think differently in a world where everybody's connected together all the time. And so I, I, I would argue, yes, um, zig while everybody's zagging, you mm -hmm. know, and um, try and do something different. And, you know, travel is a tremendously efficient and productive and inexpensive way to do that. And um, taking time off, goofing off is another great way to do that. Sabbatical Sabbaths um, is another great way. So there's, that's the assignment really for most people is, mm -hmm. is to have different ideas, to approach things differently. You're gonna need help doing that. Yeah, and I think that we, frame this backwards in the sense that when I have enough money or when I retire <laughs> yeah. or when I have the, the luxury of time, right, right, right. then I will indulge that, you know, instinct to, to go see the world. Right, when right. in truth, you know, and through your experience, it's the it's like when you don't have money and you have right, tons right. of time, that's the time to do it. And we think, oh, we can't afford it, but right, right. your example, and I, I don't know that it's that different today is that there are incredibly cheap ways to do this. Yeah. You can work when you're there, you can work and then go there and right, live, right, right, right. live cheaply. And one of the pieces of advice that, that I always give to young people that I, that I wish had been given to me when I was younger was, 
have experiences, live lean so that you can have choices and you know indulge in your creativity and your curiosity because uh, this idea that at 18 or at 20 you're supposed to know, <laughs> you know, what it is that you're going to do in the world and and lock in on that is absolutely ludicrous. Right. Yeah. There's there's so many th- things about that. There was a I think Ralph Potts talked about this story, which um, might have been in a movie of this guy who's going to Wall Street and he's kind of hates Wall Street, whatever, but he's got to make a lot of money. And he was explaining to his friend that he wanted to work for maybe one or two more years so he could have his money, his fortune, whatever it is. And then he could buy a motorcycle and drive it across China. And any, we were just, we laugh, the travelers laugh because you could work at McDonald's for a year or half a year and earn enough money to buy a motorcycle and ride across China. It's, it's, it's not yeah. a matter of money. Uh, it's like, it's like, it's the time and that was the thing that I got traveling when I was younger with very little money at all, was meeting some people on these tours and stuff who had a lot of money and having a guy um, tell me that he envied me because mm-hmm. I was taking my time, you know, I was, I was, I was on the hiking in the Himalayas, right? And, and I was going on and they were on a kind of a forced little thing and very controlled and it's like, he was saying, I, I wish I could have been you. I wish I did that when I was young. I wish I had that kind of time. And here's a, here's a rich guy. And I was like, oh, I, was like, I get it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. like the rich have money, <laughs> the wealthy have time. And it's much easier to be wealthy than rich because you can control, your, you have time that you're given. And so um, th- that's the thing I started to aim for mm-hmm. was that kind of mm-hmm. uh, having the wealth of time and control of my time. I'm pretty sure that that story comes from Ralph Potts's book Vagabonding and it's lifted out of the movie Wall Street. Yeah, it's Charlie right, right, Sheen right. Say, you know talking about what he's going to do when he when he when he makes it big, right? Right, right, right. <laughs> the yeah. Movie. Yeah. It's exactly. like you could do that now. You can do that you know, now. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, that's that's a, that's a very common trope in our family. My kids sort of have heard it many times, but very you know every couple of years I sit them down. I have three kids and I say um I have a magic wand and I'm going to give you a billion dollars. But only if you tell me what you're going to do with it, right? You get, what are you going to do with a billion dollars? And they'll go through the kind of lists and what they're, maybe they're imagining. They're, they're young adults and stuff. And you know, I would maybe buy a house or something mm-hmm. and I would go on a trip somewhere and I would have this. And I said, okay, um, that you, haven't built, you haven't spent any of your money yet. Because right? right. <laughs> in, in, in six months, that will entirely interest will pay back and you're back with a billion dollars. Now what are you gonna do? Oh, well maybe uh, I'm making something up. Maybe I'll start a little shop selling um, knitwear or uh, or I wanna do a little um, daycare center or whatever it is. And it's like, okay, you don't need a billion dollars for that. Mm -hmm. So this idea, I mean, most people's dreams are not a matter of, they're not gated by money. They're gated by other things. And um, it's very clear in, in my own experiences that th- that that dream of wanting to work to have the fortune to do it is is, is it, that's a really convoluted and unnecessary way around getting what you want mm-hmm. your dreams to do. Mm-hmm. Right, but it's the byproduct of a culture that we live in 
that is, you know, sort of pushing this narrative or incentivizing this notion that extreme wealth is the path to happiness, yeah. uh, and that you know material accumulation and uh, and 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 comfort and luxury mm-hmm. are the keys that will unlock that mm-hmm. thing that's missing in your life and yeah. fill that desperate hole in your soul. Uh, and it's only through stories of people who have, you know, explored that to the very you know, nth degree right, right. and have reported back that, you know, <laughs> and despite their reporting yeah. back, we still don't believe them, exactly. right? That's how powerful this right, messaging right, right, right. is. Right, and right. You know, I think that it, it, it demands you know, some, some extreme counter-programming right. in, in the form of you know, kind of your experience and the experience of others right, who right. can report back that in fact, after you meet your 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 base needs through income, it's yeah. not that money isn't important. Um, that it's truly you know experience and broadening your horizons and finding a way to contribute right, right. and 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 link your your life path to some kind of purpose or meaning um, that extends beyond your 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 ego and kind of you know self gratifying yeah, yeah. instincts. That you will find the happiness that all those other false promises fail to deliver on. Yeah, it's I've had again, the honor and privilege to hang out with some billionaires. And um, what's remarkable is, is that they're still asking themselves what they wanna do when they grow up, mm-hmm. right? I mean, Which is good. Which is good, right, exactly. But it's just saying that, that, that their billions actually haven't really helped them do that alone. In fact, it's added another burden. It's become another job. It's another whole set of things that they have to, to um, overcome. So, I mean, b- b- having a billion dollars is something you overcome. And it's a real issue about thinking about your kids and what impact it has on their kids, which is very, very strange in many ways. And so, um, I, so, so I've concluded, this is not in my advice book, but this is a piece of advice I have now, which is my advice is if you can all help it, do not earn a billion dollars, <laughs> okay? Please okay, give me a Kevin, favor. I'll try to avoid that. Do not, yeah, but, exactly. Yeah. You'll be much happier. Do not earn a billion dollars. Well, the real calculus is: is the money that you're earning creating freedom for you, or right. is it creating, you know, a, a, a more, you know, calcified prison for yourself? Exactly. Right. Because it can do either of those things. I'm sure right, right. there are billionaires who've been fi- able to figure out how to, you know, create freedom out of that for themselves. Maybe not. I don't know. I don't. I don't even know that I know any billionaires, but you do. But yeah. Um, you know, if your if your wealth can provide that, then okay. Yeah. But if it's just creating misery for right, yourself, right. then what's the point? Right. And so that that level of getting what you need comes way before a billion dollars. This is what I'm sure, saying. It's like you know. Course. And so at that point of a billion dollars, it is a burden. It is something that really weighs on the people who have it. It's kind of like fame. It's my advice. It was just you really don't want to be famous either if you just read any biography about a famous, really famous person, it's another type of imprisonment. Mm-hmm. And uh, most of the people who are really, really famous really regret that that is because they have to deal with it all the time. Sure. And it's a, it's a real, um, what's the word again? Uh, hinders, it hinders them in many ways. And so it's not freedom at all. And, I, and it's the same thing. So, so um, you really want to focus on this is my piece, my favorite piece of advice from the book, which is don't aim to be the best, aim to be the only. Right. And that only is where you'll, f- you'll be much more um, satisfied, happy, you'll probably have enough, 
Um, and and that is that is the route. It's the the billions is another person's success. That's that should not be your success. It's 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 someone else's movie if you're trying to make a billion dollars. You want to go. You want to be the star in your own movie. Sure, but explain that a little bit more because the idea of being the only is an intimidating yes. prospect, right? Like mm-hmm. how do you become the only? The only at what? And yes. I think it, becoming the only at anything, even if it's the most obscure yeah. know, thing on the planet, does require, again, back to what we were talking yeah. about earlier, you know, kind of being contrarian or cutting against the grain and, and, and doing yeah. things a little bit differently. And I, I don't know that everyone is, is sort of cut out for that. Yeah, so, so um, first of all, it's, it is a high bar. It is a very, very high bar. And the second thing, in my experience in, in both my own life and looking at other people, it will take most of your life to arrive there. There, there might be the really weird freakish person who's born and has a clear idea of what they're really great at that nobody else can do and um, they go for it. But most of us, it's, um, it's a long and meandering winding road with lots of detours and right turns and setbacks and turnarounds and everything else to, to arrive there. And you actually don't ever arrive. You're always on that journey of trying to figure out what, what it is about yourself that is special and unique. Um, but, but it doesn't, um, and okay, so, so, so there is, there is a, a paralysis I've seen uh, in young people. It's like, I don't know what I'm passionate about. I don't know. And so I can't really start. I can't give my hundred percent until I know what that is. And, um, I become convinced, um, that the, um, the proper way to start is to master something. And in that mastery, that becomes a platform that you begin to kind of move towards mm-hmm. discovering what it passion is. Passion is a product of action. Exactly. It's not the other way around. Exactly. And so waiting right. around until you're struck with what you're passionate about as a, as a precursor to action right. is the way most people think about it. Right. And that just leads to paralysis right. and like a protracted period of confusion. Exactly. So you, you almost, and, and it doesn't matter where you start because that's not where you're, gonna be ending and that's true. Again, if you look any remarkable person that you admire, they didn't start there, they arrived mm-hmm. at there. And the, the more kind of distinctive, unique, special and only they are, the more likely they started way away from where they actually discovered what they were good at. And so don't, doesn't really, don't be concerned about where you're starting as long as you're moving forward in that way of really de- deliberately trying to get better, you'll arrive in, in your in the right direction. Yeah, I I think age and wisdom really gives you clarity on this perspective. Right. Though, when I look at your life, obviously, when you headed out to Asia at a young age, or you know, even when you were working at the Whole Earth Catalog mm-hmm. and founding Wired, like none of those experiences could have uh, you know created clarity that you would be this no. thought leader and futurist <laughs> and pontificator on you know everything right, right, right. i don't i don't even know how to qualify <laughs> yeah, yeah, like right, what right. it is that you do uh, but what you do is very unique and you yeah. are a one of one right, right, right and right. all of those experiences assembled to produce this you know individual who has a certain perspective mm-hmm that has value that nobody else has. Right, right. And you know, in my own experience, I've done a number of things that have led me to this place, none of which I whiteboarded or predicted or mm-hmm. kind of scoped out yeah. or set as a goal. They're the byproduct of trying different things and failing and right, all right. the like. 
What I find though, is that it's very difficult to penetrate the mindset of a 20 something year old mm-hmm. person with this. That perspective almost has to be earned. And mm-hmm. an example of that is I had um, Rain Wilson on the podcast like a year ago, who is, he was, he was an actor on that right. show, The Office, whatever. He was like, 20s are for fucking around. Don't even worry about <laughs> yeah. it. What are you guys so stressed out about? Yeah, you're right. supposed to be, you're supposed to go out and right, fail right, and right, like, right, who right. cares, right. right? And that, like we shared that video uh-huh. and it went crazy viral. And it was a pretty close 50-50 split in like how people responded to it. Like people saying amen on the one hand and a lot of people being like, you don't understand my life. Like how dare you, I can't afford this. This, That's a very privileged perspective. And you know, I would, and 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 not to be you know like I'm 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 sensitive to people's right, right, right. varying you know socioeconomic right, conditions right, right. etc. I don't know people you know people's lives, but you know I think the wisdom of that still holds true. But I think it's my point being that it, it, you know for a lot of young people it's 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 threatening to hear that. It's hard to hear that to like step into the idea that that might be a possibility is is scary. And it does, you know, you know, require kind of grappling with 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 certain realities. Um, and so, I guess my question is, like, is it different now? I mean, we live in a different time yeah, now yeah. than when you did it. Is it harder to do that now? Is it still possible? Like, how would you speak to right. that young person who had kind of a, a you know a strong, visceral, negative reaction to that yeah. type of advice? So. I, I too am sensitive and I'm thinking not just of the people in this country, but the people all over the world, sure. say in Asia where I spend a lot of time, where this is a very real thing and they have far more constraints on their lives even than say a typical American in terms of their parents and their expectations about what they do and stuff. So the way the, the way I would say that is that, um, as a first pass is that if it is all possible for you, the more you can do that, the better. So, so I would say, yes, there are gonna be people whose lives do not allow them that luxury. And that's unfortunate. Mm-hmm. And that's something we would like to change. That's something that for me, what prosperities brings, which is that we have more choices. Uh, and you know, for most of the people in the villages of the Asian countries that I have spent in, they had even fewer options than that. They, they were, were, if they stayed in the village, they were gonna be the farmer. They didn't have any chance to become the only. So um, so yes, I think it is privilege in that sense, but what we want is we want to spread that privilege around to more people. But if you have any chance to do that, in some ways you're cheating us by not taking advantage of that. That's why you do art. You do art in part for yourself, but also because, because you owe it to us. For that's That's the deal. And the deal meaning that you're alive and you have this chance and you have a genius that nobody else has. And if you can share that with us, we all benefit. So, so I would say, yes, it, it, it may not be that everybody can take advantage of it, but it's still true to the extent that it is possible for you. Um, it'll be better for you and for the world if you did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well said. Um, good advice. And that's just you know one kind of slice out of uh, you know the the greater um, slices of advice that that are coming out of this new book that we've mentioned but haven't <laughs> explained, which is your newest book, Excellent Advice for Living. Um, 
this is sort of, uh, this is a really interesting book because on the one hand, it's incredibly simple, but mm-hmm. every idea that, that you know, shows up on every page, the more you consider these very concise phrases, mm-hmm. the more profound you realize they are. It's almost a tweet storm, yeah. right? This is like a tweet thread in, right. a, in the form of a book, <laughs> right. condensed wisdom over the course of your life, uh, you know, offered up in, in, a, in very mm-hmm. digestible form. You can open it up to any page and mm-hmm. just, you know, consume one thought and think about it, uh, you know, f- for the day. So talk a little bit about like, why you decided to write this book mm-hmm. and uh, what your kind of intention for it is. Yeah. Um, so I began the book, not with the idea of making a book, but um, I have been in the habit of writing down bits of wisdom into a little compact proverb of some sort to help me remember it. So I could repeat it to myself. So a, a piece of advice I picked up at Whole Earth from one of the editors, Ann Herbert, was, um, this was, I don't know, 40 years ago. She said, look, you know, whenever you are being invited to do something into the future, like to have a meeting, to go speak somewhere, to have coffee with someone, to make a presentation, um, ask yourself, um, what I do if it was tomorrow morning? And that was like, oh man, that was so useful. That was so, so powerful because that's what I would do is I would get an invitation to do something. I said, that's, that's really great. But wait, 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 wait. Um, would I want to do this if it was tomorrow morning? Right. And then... If it's, if it's far enough out on the calendar, yeah. like I'll agree to anything. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but you, but it'll be, soon enough, it'll be tomorrow yeah, morning yeah. and you're like, I don't really want to do this. So uh-huh. uh, this future projection was very, very useful. And so I reduce it to that little thing and I would repeat that to myself. And there was another piece of advice that I learned from, and I don't even remember where, because um, these things come and go, but um, it was that if I lost something in my household and I couldn't find it, and then I finally found it, my flashlight, whatever it was, and I would go to put it back, the piece of advice was, oh, no, no, don't put it back where you found it. Put it back where you first looked for it. Mm. Because that first impulse, next right. time you can look for it, that's where I'm going to find it. So I repeat that to myself. And so I decided I was writing these down and then I decided that um, I should keep doing that for my kids because I have three kids and we, our, our style of parenting was based on my experience, which was I didn't really pay much attention to what my parents said. I paid a lot of attention to what they did. So that was our style, which was we didn't preach or even give advice to our kids very much. It was all through what we did. Mm-hmm. And, but <laughs> as writing these things down, there were like a lot of them that I actually wished I had known earlier. So I was like, well, it's time. We should give some of those, write them down and, 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 and give them to the kids. And so that's what I was starting to do. I was starting to write down things, and first for my son, to um, things that I wished I'd known earlier in these little, compact, mm-hmm. tweetable things. And that's how I began. And I put out 68 of them on my 68th birthday and I shared it with my kids and they loved it. And I then shared it with my greater family and went out from there and it kind of ricocheted around the internet and did its thing. And I was encouraged to do more of them and I kept doing them on my birthday. And then there was a point in which they were kind of scattered all over the place and I thought they needed to be in between covers so they could sure. hand it to a young person. Yeah. And that's the origin.
Yeah, it's great. Um, we talked earlier about don't be the best, be the only. That's certainly one entry in here. And I wrote down a couple that kind of, uh, you know, stuck out uh, to me. I mean, they really are like, you know, these just really, they on the surface, like really simple right. thoughts, right? Don't keep making the same mistakes, try to make new, new mistakes. mistakes. Like, okay, well, what, what are you actually <laughs> saying there, right? Like we should go make mistakes. Thanks. Like yeah. you have permission to fail and you should fail. Um, it's only problematic when you keep doing the, the same, same thing mistake. over and right. over and over again, right? Right. Um, I love this other one. Productivity is often a distraction. Don't aim for better ways to get through your tasks as quickly as possible. Instead, aim for better tasks that you never want to stop doing. Right. And that's something again. I took me a long time to kind of realize that because you'd read all these product, productivity books and stuff, you're getting things done and all that kind of stuff. But no, no, actually. What makes me happiest is, is spending an inordinate amount of times things mm. um, never getting done. So I, I make one piece of art every day. I did that for last You're year. You're sharing the, the AI art that you share I'm on Twitter now doing every AI single day. Uh -huh. but, I'm, but I spend an incredible amount of time. It's like, I'm not trying to reduce the amount of time. I'm trying to increase the amount of time I spend that because I just enjoy it so much. Right. Um, another one is, uh, and this gets into kind of segueing into the, the broader picture of who you are. Uh, over the long term, the future is decided by optimists. Yes. To be an optimist, you don't have to ignore the multitude of problems we create. You just have to imagine how much our ability to solve problems improves. Right. So, you know, this gets at the heart, uh, you know, kind of the core of like who you are as a human being. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you're many things, but most notably, you know, sort of the reductionist term that gets associated with you as futurist. I don't know how mm -hmm. you feel about that. Um, but, uh, you know, that is the thing, like you have this capacity to, um, communicate and understand the present moment and how it relates right. to the near and, and short-term future. And you have the facility to kind of communicate around that, that, that is rare and I think instructive. Um, but I think, you know, as we've already demonstrated, it's, it's broader than that because you have lived this very broad life, mm -hmm. you know, well-traveled, deeply considered, um, clearly somebody who, who has devoted copious amount of time to pondering questions, big and small. Uh, and, and, and from that, you know, extracting what the short and long-term future will hold and how to deploy our, our attention, what we should be worried about, thinking about what we shouldn't be worried about, et cetera, all of which, you know, is, is sort of condensed and consolidated in this latest book. Um, but the overarching theme to all of this is this unbridled optimism. And, mm. and this is something that I personally struggle with, mm. especially in our, in our very current moment where things ha you know, seem to be happening quite rapidly. And you know, from my perspective, at times spinning a little bit out of control. So talk me through your perspective mm. of the, let's talk about the current moment first before we get into future casting. Sure, like sure, how are you sure. making sense of what yeah, is actually yeah. happening right now? We're right, 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 you know, in this moment of chat GPT-4 being introduced to the world mm -hmm. and, and there's a global conversation um, that's occurring, you know, at a very broad level around artificial mm -hmm. intelligence, what mm -hmm. it means, what it portends, you know, what it's, what it's doing for us, yeah. what our fears are, et cetera. So, you know, wh where are you at with all this? Yeah, so um, 
I, I, I think you're right to kind of pinpoint the optimism as a pivot. And I think, um, I would say that I am generally, by temperament, genetically proposed to, you know, to be optimistic. But that actually, I have actually, um, but also think optimism is something you can learn, particularly as a child. And I have actually um, deliberately um, become even more optimistic as I get older. And um, where does that come? As I said, there's a natural temperament, but it comes from other places. Um, I don't spend much time trying to predict the future. I am trying to predict the present just to figure out what exactly is happening mm. going on right now and to really look at that. And, and, and I think that's half of the, half of the present is just getting this understanding what's happening right now. And, um, but, I, but I have noticed over time that um, optimistic views tended to be more correct than not. So the, the people who, like if, so the more I became interested in the future, the more I would read the past and become interested in history, which I hated in high school. I just had no interest whatsoever. I was turned off by it. I just didn't see it. But as I started to travel more, as I started to have to uh, work in the technology, which was changing so fast, the more interesting, I, the more interested I, I became in history, and the more I read it. And now I just mostly read history. And what I get from that, and my own experiences traveling in these unde uh, undeveloped and developing um, places, was the acknowledgement of progress acknowledging that there actually has indeed been progress, material progress as well as moral progress over time. And that when we, when people talk about the, this current time and the craziness of it, I have to say, you can only say that if you have no idea of history and how crazy things, how crazy politics were in the US, say in the 1890s or whatever, it was, we just, it's almost beyond belief. I mean, think about the fact that there was a vice president who shot his political opponent. It was like, and then went right, back. Right, like dueling, yeah, like it, Hamilton. It was like, that's and, yeah. like, <laughs> it's that's kind of insane. totally, you know, I mean, <laughs> and we disagreed to the point that we were killing each other during the Civil War. So, so in that sense, if you, history gives a little bit more perspective to the current problem. That's all I'm saying. It puts it into perspective to say, well, actually, We've had periods like that in the past and what happened. So um, that sense of history and progress, I think informs a lot of how I look at things. And um, that's a, a fundamental um, orientation. So, so the little heuristic that I have, that I play in my head, which is that if we can create 1% more than we destroy every year, then we can have progress because that 1% can accumulate. That's the genius of compounded interest. If you can have 1% betterment, so 1%, if we can be 1% better than we are bad, that's all we need. And that little tiny bit is kind of invisible in the world. 1% difference in betterment, it's, you know, it means like 49.5% of everything is crap and terrible and maybe harmful. So it's really hard to see that little difference of, of 1%, but we can see it in retrospect if we look behind. And I had the privilege of being in a time machine and going back to the behind, going back to where we were and really living there in a feudal time with 
feudal relationships and feudal technology and very little. And so I know deep down where we've come from and what, how far we've come. And that sense of like, well, here's what we get. Yeah, we got some new problems, but man, we also have some new good things. And it's mm -hmm. so much easier for us to imagine going forward the problems and all the ways in which it doesn't work. That's entropy. It's harder to imagine the one or two ways things do work. The way things work are much more improbable than the way things break. That's again, that's the rule of entropy. That's the second law of thermodynamics that's never been broken, which is that the ways the the ways in which things cannot work and degrade are far, far vaster than the few ways that it can work. Because things that work are more improbable. And part of what we want to be is we want to be improbable beings. Another way we could say of like don't be the best, be the only is be the most improbable person possible. Hmm. Okay, and so that improbability is biased to things breaking down, to there being more, more ways we can imagine things not working and the difficulty in trying to imagine ways that do work. And that comes back again to why we should be optimistic, which is that because it's so hard to, um, to make things that work, they really work inadvertently. We have to kind of imagine that they could work and to believe that they could work in order to make them work. So there were a bunch of people who saw the Star Trek communicator and said, I want to make that. I want that, to, I want that to be real. I believe that that could be real. There are lots of ways in which could not work. And there were many tries, the Newton and others that failed because it was easier to fail than not. That's the general rule. But there were people who really believed that that would work and it'd be good. And so that belief, that imagination of imagining what it is that we want and believing that it's possible is those are the people who make the things. And so in the end, when we look back, all the good things we have were made by people who believed that they were possible and believed that they could be made. And so going forward, that's going to be the same is, is that it's, um, if we want to have a society that really works and is full of t technology, we need to imagine an optimistic view of it and believe that we can actually uh, reach that. I'm completely with you on the belief that we need to, you know, have a sense that the world can be better and and, mm -hmm. and aim our intentionality and our and our our hard work, you know, in that direction. But on the subject of like the world becoming one percent better or you know, kind of looking around and seeing, you know, what's happening is not, is, is that not a factor of the lens through which you choose to perceive the world? Because you can, you can look at the Star Trek communicator and, and then, you know, uh, you know, look at the iPhone, et cetera, yeah. and celebrate that. Or you can look at the accelerating rate of, of you know, species extinction mm -hmm. and climate degradation mm -hmm. and the widening gap between the haves and the have-nots and and the sort of you know to your point about uh, you know understanding history, looking at the history of, of past empires and the rise and fall and the the arc of these and and to try to identify where you know the United States might fall on that arc you know. I think you might agree that we perhaps we're on the decline of that. And what does that mean in terms of the global, uh, you know, sort of power structure? And mm -hmm. 
um, where we sit in the world and what we should be focused on and, and whatnot. Like, so there's a choice of perspective that comes into play here that sort of tempers my, sure, you sure. know, my, my, uh, you know, ability to just jump on the yeah. optimistic bandwagon. So, so you're right, and my perspective is decidedly, in this in this respect, not American. Sure. There are three hundred fifty. healthy. There are three hundred fifty Americans between China and India alone. There's ten times the number of people. Increasingly, what they think about the world will matter more than what we think about the world. So I so I look at the world in a kind of a global perspective, and I think that's where we're moving to, and that's part of what the U.S. is still struggling with is mm-hmm. this idea that it is a superpower and it doesn't want to be uh, doesn't want to be a globalist. I mean, mm-hmm. this is sort of like the ultimate insult right now, which is crazy to me because. Look, people, this is where we're headed to. We're headed to a planetary economy. We're gonna have planetary governance. That's the direction that we have a planetary machine right now. So on average, globally, um, if you do the Obama test, which is I'll let you, you, you're gonna be born at some year in a random assignment of sex and gender and place in society. Where do you wanna be? What year do you wanna be born in? There's, there's not a year in the past. That's a better deal than right now. Mm-hmm. That's the Steven Pinker kind of notion right. of this is the best time to be alive. This is the best time. That's, this is the acknowledgement of progress. And so, um, yes, there are there's tr- new technologies. The more powerful they are, the more powerful problems they will produce. Right, explain that a little bit. Like this this idea of fracturing the binary between we're either moving towards a utopia <laughs> or a dystopia. Yeah, so that is, and, and by the way, um, almost every single really good science fiction movie about the future is dystopian because they just make greater stories. I mean, the, the, uh-huh. the people writing stories really know how to tell stories and they're mostly about um, this dystopian world. There's very, very few about a, a world that you would wanna live in on this planet. And um, that's a problem for us. But that choice of, and then utopias, we, we just, first of all, I don't think they're a good idea. I don't think we'd want to be happy there and they're impossible. But this idea of no other choice, and I coined a term called protopia, which is this idea that we can have a world that's a little tiny bit better, this going back to the little delta, incrementally a little bit better, we kind of creep towards betterment over time. It's not problem free. In fact, the problems are the propulsion for progress. And that world of um, inching forward where we have new problems as well as new technologies, um, that's the protopian world. And I think um, that is, so that's a more achievable, that's a more achievable destination. Part of that definition is also driven by human agency and choice, right? Of course. That's the thing. Like right. we are we are creating this in real time. Yes. Right. I wrote a book called The Inevitable, and the inevitability that I talk about in the book, which is technological inevitability, is that um things like once you invent, once a civilization anywhere in the galaxy invents electrical wires and things, they'll begin to invent electric motors. And once, and once they have electrical signals, they'll have radio. So it's like there's a sequence mm-hmm. of things which will inevitably come up. Once you have you know, uh, electrical networks, you'll have the internet of some sort sooner or later on your planet. Now, and the AI will come. So the AI coming is sort of inevitable, but what's not inevitable 
is the um, character of the AIs, and they're plural, there are many types, and um, who owns them, how are they governed, is it international or national, is it commercial or non-commercial, is it pro non-profit, is it open source or closed? There are so many different attributes that we have to decide and can decide and have the choice to decide, and all those choices make tremendous difference to us. So the AIs are coming, but the character of the AIs and the system is, is entirely our choice collectively. So we do have tremendous choices, even in the fact that this stuff at the large scale is inevitable. Mm -hmm. But that choice can only drive so much of the landscape of consequence in the sense that there will always be, especially with these emergent technologies, uh, a landscape of unintended consequences. Yes. And by their very nature, they right. are unintended, despite our best efforts to curtail right. them or to you know, instill them with a certain ethic that we think is sure. going to you know, you know, be the best for right. so humanity. In addition to the unintended negative consequences, there are also in unintended benefits. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of what we see happening right now with GPT and the image AI generators and that to me is a thrill, is that lots of things that they're doing, the inventors of them had no idea that they could do. Right, and within 24 hours, yes. there are use cases popping up that nobody thought of. Nobody thought in of. In one day. Right, and that's the thing I discovered in researching the history of technology is that the, first of all, several things. One is simultaneous independent invention is the norm because, um, the idea of the heroic inventors is totally wrong. It's a Hollywood invention. But the idea is, is, is that um, ideas and inventions are networks of things. There are many, many parts. And if someone didn't invent it, someone else right behind them would. Which means that um, um, also the inventors of them don't know what they're good for. Mm -hmm. I, I tell a story in one of my books about Thomas Edison who was inventor of the phonograph, the wax cylinder, recording things. And he, that evening or day or whatever it was, he made a list of all the things he thought this device would do. And the number one thing, which actually he, he did, and, and, and it's um, been, some had been recovered, was to record the last words of the dying for prosperity. So this was, a, this was like a really freaky thing. It was like, oh, in the future you could hear Aunt Albert talking. Mm -hmm. And he made other ideas and at number 10 down at the bottom was you might be able to use it for music. Right. So he had no idea. Yeah, yeah, no concept. No concept of, of, of what case. it is. And the only way we are gonna figure out these new technologies, particularly as they're complicated, is through use. Mm -hmm. It's through use. We can't think is, there's a term I call thinkism. Thinkism is this idea that we can decide and figure out things and, solu and have solutions and solve stuff by thinking about them. But it's action, it's using them these technologies are so complicated, they have to be used in action for to discover both the plus and minuses. And that's what's happening right now with the AIs is that we've been talking about it for a hundred years, but it's not until we actually use them every day that we begin to see what they're good for and bad for. And so, uh, and, and so this, this uh, idea, there's, there's unintended negatives, but there are also unintended positives as well. Right, so within, within days, as we said, of, of GPT-4 going online, there's tweet threads about 
use cases that nobody thought right. of before. Somebody figured out that uh, you know you could automatically have a lawsuit filed against a robocaller. You right, know, right, right. like these amazing, like very right, like you know specific right. small use cases um, that are kind of amazing. You know, writing out in handwritten notes an idea for a website and then right, right. chat GPT, just creating that website good, in yeah, minutes or whatever it is. Yep. Um, but also we have, you know, Meta launching or, or sort of, uh, you know, introducing mm-hmm. its AI and somehow that immediately finds its way to 4chan when it was right, supposed right. to be guardrailed, I guess, within the ecosystem of meta, like there are these things that humans do, right? Like right, whether, right, right. whether they're, they're malevolent or just chaos agents, you know, that, right, that, right. that despite our best efforts to guard against, find a way, right? Sure. And so protecting against that causes concern. And I think the, the deeper concern perhaps, or, or, or the thing that, that I think myself and other people mm. find alarming, it's just the the pace at which this is mm. happening. It's it's a dizzying pace, uh, mm. you know. That uh, it's occurring so rapidly that we don't have time to even get our footing before mm-hmm. there's a new announcement and a new leap in technology, mm-hmm. and that gives us the sense that this is getting away from us mm, okay. a little bit. Yeah, well, it's not getting away from us. It's barely. I mean, if you get into the actual thing, we can unplug these at any time. We can. Setback. There's very few things that are completely irreversible, and that's one of the myths about AI. Is somehow it's irreversible that it's going to unleash and then it's going to turn around and kill us. And that's just Hollywood again. It's it's a good story, but there's no absolutely no evidence whatsoever in any direction that there that it's on a runaway exponential curve. In fact, it's the opposite. So so the idea would be that it's exponential curve. We get it going, and it's unstoppable. It becomes kind of a superpower, but if you actually, um, there is no exponential growth in the intelligence part of it. The exponential mm-hmm. growth is in the resources that we consume to make it. So it's actually the inverse of exponential growth. Meaning it's requiring more and more compute power to produce a little bit of a gain. So the gain is not increasing exponential. The gain is pretty linear, but but the number of resources required to make that increases exponentially. So it's actually self-limiting in in that sense right now at this time. Yeah, I mean, we should distinguish between narrow AI, generative AI, and then, you know, the 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 kind of thing, the sexy thing that's that's out there on the horizon, which is, you know, general AI, which, which we're nowhere near at this point. Right. But we're, we're in this uncanny valley in the way these chatbots speak yeah. to us that create the sensation of of you know humanity or some level of consciousness that's truly just an illusion. So, so but it is it does it is unsettling in that in it, that it, I guess. Yeah. So let me acknowledge something. It is unsettling. It is moving fast, but um, it's not out of our control. And then secondly, what we're discovering is is, is more something more fundamental, which is not that this thing is getting so much smarter. It's just that we're realizing that many of the things that we held as being highly elevated to achieve turn out to be fairly mechanical. Right. I can assure most people you're not gonna lose your job. You may lose your job description, okay? And, and the task in your job may change. And some of the tasks may go away, but your job is unlikely to go away. So far, I found only one kind of job, of one person, one kind of job who's lost to AI. 
everyone else is going to change it. But but we, we we have we have time if we pay attention to it. What we don't want to do is to prohibit or outlaw or ban these things because then we don't get to steer. It's only we can only steer these things by using them. Mm-hmm. And so there is a there is a tendency to want to well I want to stop it. I want to halt it. I want, I want. I don't want this thing to happen, and that means that no, no, you're you're not going to get to steer. The people who actually do use it somewhere are going to be the ones steering it because we can only steer it through using it, finding out how it works. And the the idea of um, general intelligence, artificial general intelligence, I think is 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 again, it's a myth. It's it's not even real. We have no evidence of such a thing because so far. The kinds of intelligence that we make are very, very specific, very, very narrow, and we have really no idea how our own brains work. We're just we're just projecting all kinds of things about us. And I think one of the greatest things that the AI are going to help us is to help us become more human and better human. And I'll give you an example, the simplest one, which is... Um, we train these generative AIs on all the stuff that every, all humans have written, all the content, all the books, all the writing, all the literature. And it's sort of like the average of, of humans, okay? And, and, and it turns out that the average human behavior is sort of racist and sexist, right? sexist and mean. And like we're outraged. It's like we won't accept that. It has to be better than us. Hmm. Okay, we can... We can put in ethical moral guidance into these because it's just code. That's pretty easy. The, so we can easily code in ethics to these AIs and we can actually give them better th- than us. But the problem is, is that we humans don't know what that looks like. Does it mean like you're woke? Is it like being mm-hmm. super woke? Is it something else? Is it, wh- what does that look like to behave better than us or at our best? Where do we get that consensus? Who is the who? Who is the us in this? Who decides who the us is? There are all these questions. But, but if we can arise and, and come there, so if this is what a, the best human or the better human would look like, and then we can code that into it, we could make them. And then we w- that would help us ourselves become better because it's like our children would make us better people. Okay, we want our children to be better than us. And so we articulate, the best behavior, and they can maybe help us change our behavior. So in the effort to actually try and come up with ethics that are consistent and deep, moral guidance that is, that is elevated for, for us, we have a chance to become better humans. Sure, but that that is a larger problem than I think people <laughs> understand because there is no one, in the same way that there is no monolithic AI, there is no monolithic ethic. There yeah, is no right. one singular value set right. that should drive this. Right. And you know the ethics or, or the values that are important to the creators of a particular AI may not very well match up against the value set or ethics of another group. Right. So 
that's a difficult problem it is, to solve, it is. of course. It's a huge problem. And those, you know, whatever, whatever is instilled into that AI in terms of values and right. ethics is gonna dictate results. So right. that's a sticky wicket right. for sure. So, and so, then, so, so you may you have know. people favoring one over the other. So it's like the old trolley problem for the self-driving car. I'm gonna use, I'm gonna use this AI for this and this for this. Well, or? no, it's, it's like, okay, <laughs> you have a car. So should the car prioritize the safety of the driver or the pedestrians? Right, That's I mean, we get down to thought experiments right. that are, you know, yeah. Th those are old philosophical like problems. trolley problems. But now we have to answer them. We can't just mm -hmm. wave our arms and say, we don't answer it. We actually have to answer it. And so people will say, no, I'm gonna buy the car that, that, that prioritizes the safety of the driver mm -hmm. over the passenger. They'll make an answer. The answer is we're gonna favor the, the safety of the passenger over the pedestrians. Mm -hmm. And you can buy that one because that's our ethics here. So, so, so we don't, Again, we have uh, given ourselves a pass, uh, the kind of the inconsistent uh, ethics and morality that we have when we're driving, because we don't know who we favor. We don't have that luxury with the AIs. We actually have to make a decision, which will force us to understand that our own ethics are very shallow and inconsistent. So we have to better one. And there'll be, as you said, there'll be competing ones and which ones do people favor? Right. And there are there are regulatory and, and legal issues that are implied by that, yeah. right? Like, yeah. are you really enabled to make that decision that your car gets to favor right. you over right. the pedestrian? Right. Who gets right. to make that decision, exactly. right? Um, that's a problem. I think the other wrinkle here is, is that, that makes people a little unsettled and maybe you can speak to this, is this notion that the AIs, even as they currently exist, mm -hmm. the creators of them, can't tell you how right. the decisions are being arrived right, at. Right, and I right, think right. that that freaks out a lot of people. It does, it does. And if we can't understand that, right. and we're only at the inception right. in terms of the power and capacity of what right. these tools are gonna be able to avail us sure. in, in the coming years, that's disturbing as right, we right. tiptoe towards a more general AI version right, of right, what we're now right, seeing. Right. Yeah, I, I think you're right. This, this sort of unexplainability of the AIs is disturbing. Uh, it's interesting that we aren't as disturbed that the humans that we deal with can't explain things either for some reason, okay? <laughs> we accept that, right? Well, yeah, for we some accept reason. That. That's perfectly fine, but I yeah. demand, this is again going to, we demand our creations to be better than us, okay? And, but, but secondly, to, to that point is there are efforts right now, it's a whole field of AI study called explainable AI to actually have it explain it. And what it does is it uses another AI that's built mm -hmm. to reach in and to try to explain what the AI is doing. Interesting. And that is of course the genesis of consciousness. But isn't it so complicated that even should that right. secondary AI succeed at that, the manner in which it would communicate to a human being would be so reductive as to be right not necessarily even accurate. Right, and that's exactly the same problem that humans have. Mm -hmm. Why did you do that? Right, well, we're all clouded by our emotions uh, and our biases. Of course, and we're gonna and add, by the way, just wait till we yeah. add emotions to this, which is right. in the next couple of years, because a lot of people think, though well, you can't really have emotions until you have consciousness and awareness and stuff. No, again, emotions is something that's very primitive like the other things we're discovering. You don't need mm. very much. Our pets have emotions. We can put, we can put lovingness and being loved and grad, all these things into very elementary machines and they're gonna really spook people because it'd be like her. There'd be people who bond 
to these things um, in an emotional right. way. Like Megan. Like Megan. And yeah. so it's it's like, <laughs> it's gonna be very, very complicated. But the thing- And the, yet the optimism within you remains because, undaunted. Because they are like our children. It's like, yes, and we are like gods. Okay, we're gonna make these beings that have free will and choices. And we hope that they surprise us with amazingly good stuff. But the price that we're willing to pay is that they may do something harmful. Okay, that's like you can't really, you can't generate anything really great without that possibility of going the other way. Mm -hmm. And, th and so are we willing to pay the price to unleash these kinds of entities that can actually generate new things? And I think we want to minimize that harm. And so how do we do that with children? We train them, we, we instill them with values. We try to have, we try to, con we try to move forward our own values into. And so we are going to train them, but we don't want to restrain them and say, no, no, um, the fact that you could do something wrong means that I'm not going to let you have make a choice. I'm not going to let you create anything new, and so that's what we're doing with these machines in order to, in order for them to generate new things that would be useful to us with us. We want to train them. Sure. And so we want to but minimize it. We're not going to eliminate it. I got you. But on this idea that we are the gods, we are unleashing this new technology right. and we are training it, and it is learning. What happens when what it is learning is how to self-improve itself mm -hmm. and to do that with extreme exponential rapidity right. to the point that almost instantaneously it becomes the God and we become the subject. Right. And the notion that we can simply unplug it right. becomes uh, you know, an impossibility. Right. So, so I'm, ever, I'm with you all the way except for the exponential part. As I said, there's zero evidence of that, in fact, it's the other way around. It can have thinkism. It, it, it's, it can work in its brain, but it doesn't have what what it needs, which is what we are gifted with, which is a body to interact with the world and have impact. So yes, it could work in its in this little mind and go round and round and get a little smarter. But it's stuck inside a circuit somewhere to actually have impact, to actually take control, to actually have effect on the world. It actually has to be connected to the world in some ways. It has to. But interact. isn't it connected to the world by dint of being, you know, wired into the internet? Th that does. Well, what's it going to do? I don't know. Well, I mean, I, what what couldn't it do? At well, that I mean, point? It's, it's like it's connected right now. Its impact is the fact that other people are reading it. Humans are are, are translating that into the world. They're they're doing it. They're they're putting out whatever it is. So in the sense that, that it needs us, it still mm -hmm. needs us. The idea that it can be independent is, um, is an abstraction that just, um, it's very, it's a fantasy that we can imagine, but it, it doesn't have any bearing in the actual real world. And the same thing with exponential, we can imagine exponential growth, but there's no evidence at all of anything being exponential in the real world right now. And, and, and to have something, uh, that gets smarter and smarter through his own training to have some effect on the world, it has to do something in the world. Like, what's it going to do? What's what's this brain going to do? Is it going to, like, there's you know, it's going to take over the drones? Well, how does it take over the drones? What's the what's that mechanism? I mean, it's it's going to like put itself somewhere. I mean, it's all 
It's a fantasy. Right, I mean, it, it, it reminds me of, I think it's, is it Nick Bostrom who has- The who, paperclip the paperclip, the paperclip thought experiment. It's, yeah. just, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's actually like, it, it is a religious fantasy, this belief that the thing could become like our God. It's like the cargo coat. It's like, well, we're, it's gonna solve all our problems. That's the Ray Kurzweil idea. Mm -hmm. it gets to, and then we can solve cancer. Well, the thing about it, that's thinkism. This idea that you could solve cancer by thinking about it, just by reading papers. You could read, you could have the most genius AI in the world right now. And if it read all the papers about cancer that has been published so far, it would not be able to cure cancer. It still needs to do experiments. It would still have, to, there's still stuff we don't know. This idea of, so Ray and people like to, like to think, and they think, well, if, I, if you have a really lot of thinking, then it can solve problems. Thinking is one part of solving a problem, and it's probably not the most important part. This idea that you call dumb smarten, yes. right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, another, it's another problem, which <laughs> is that these AIs can be really, really intelligent in one area and completely idiotic in another. And I think our frustration is going to be, like we see with chat GPT already, is like, how can you be so dumb while you're so smart at the same time in another direction? And that's because the engineering maximum is we can't optimize everything. There's always trade-offs. Every organism alive today is not, there's no general purpose superior organism. There's no organism that's better than any other organism mm -hmm. because they're all being trade offs for particular jobs. And so if you're really, really fast, then you're probably not very nimble. If you're really powerful, you're not going to really be efficient. And so there's just trade offs. And the same thing in, 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 in intelligence. There are a lot of dimensions to it, it's not just a single one. And there's going to be like to be really, really good at translating or image generating, you're probably not gonna be good, as good as something else that's made for it over here. And so this idea of a general intelligence, it's, 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 it's ignorance of the fact that we have no idea how our own minds work. We don't, even, we don't have access. We can't explain ourselves. And, and yet we've, we've come to understand that we can, things can still be useful even though we don't understand mm. them. It's interesting because as somebody who is a techno optimist, I would think that you would anticipate or expect that general artificial intelligence is an inevitability, but you seem to be saying like, this is not possible or in the event that it arises, it's not gonna come in the form that we fear. I, I, I think the picture you wanna have in your head of, of thousands of different species of AIs, plural, many of them being created to perform certain functions, like say doing mathematical proofs, which will be amazing to help us do proofs of scientific stuff. Okay, they're gonna be engineered to do that and we'll work with them to do that. But the picture of, of rather than a kind of a superhuman godlike thing is to think about these as artificial aliens, like Spock. They may even be conscious at some level although most times consciousness is a liability, we don't want your self-driving car to be conscious mm -hmm. because it's a distraction. You don't want to be worried yeah, about whether that it's- That consciousness is a liability. It's a you liability. You want it to be a, a, like a binary function, yeah. functioning machine. And, 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 and yeah, and these things are, are also not binary. They're, 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 they're gradations. They're, there's little bits of, of things, including consciousness and intelligence. But the way to think of them is like Spock, which is meaning that they can be very, very bright about certain things but they're not human-like because they're built on different kind of substrate. 
And that's their benefit is that they don't think like us. And that's true of the generative ones we see right mm-hmm. now. They can imitate us in a bland way, but that's news, not useful to us. And you, we, we detect it. We are already sensitized to it. It's like, no, that's, that sounds like a GPT. So I call them the universal personal intern. Right. And you're, it's embarrassing to release the intern's work. You want to check their work. You want to work with them. They're going to always be available for doing all kinds of things, but it's a it's a cooperation. It's a it's a partnership. It's a, they're co-pilots. They're they're interns. They're assistants, and um, we're going to use them like we navigate with a GPS assistant, mm-hmm. a navigator. We have assistant librarian who searches the web for us. Now we have the interns who help us create things, and um, that's the current state. But what we're going to is is these artificial aliens, which are really smart. But they, they, they aren't, if they're really, really smart in some dimension, they're unlikely to be smart in another dimension at the same time because it's a trade-off, because it's engineering. Mm-hmm. Can opt, like what would be like the, what's the super organism on the planet? Organism to beat all the other organisms. It's like, that's the nonsensical question. You were saying, what's the intelligence that would be superior to all intelligences? It's a nonsensical question. Right. I mean, we like to think as human beings that we are the most, uh, you know, adapted, advanced, but, you know, are we any more adapted to our environment than the cockroach? You know, you've spoken about this, right? Right, Like we need to, you know, recalibrate how we think about these things and then apply that mentality to how we're thinking about AI. So in that, you know, kind of uh, strain of thought, would you say that this is a base level, like emergent life form or mm. intelligence? Like, how are you thinking about that in the more kind of like, you know, sci fi sensibility? Sure, sure. Like, is there is this idea that, you know, we as human beings, like the caterpillar to the butterfly, are here to evolve and that the, 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 the evolution, mm. you know, will ultimately be, you, you know, to, to, transform into this new life form at some point, which will not necessarily be carbon-based and maybe silicon-based. So I wrote a book called What Technology Wants, which was primarily trying to ask this question of what are the general directions in the evolution of technology? And just as a spoiler, my view of, my theory of the, my theory of technology is that it's an extension of the same forces that run through evolution in life the same self-organizing forces are working through evolution. And evolution is basically biological life accelerated. That is kind of like, is attempting to create forms that you could not get to with wet tissue. Mm-hmm. So these all these, this space of all possible things that, that you need to have a, a mind help you make. The mind came from wet biology, but it can make these things that we could not get to, that the biological evolution would not get to by itself. And so um, what are, what's the general directions? And one of the direct, direct general directions is that we constantly will specialize, that we make the first life as a general purpose um, cell. And now in our own bodies, we have like 52 different specialty cells. We have skeletal cells, heart muscle cells. We've specialized and mm-hmm. that's the general pattern is you have the first camera that did everything. Now you have specialized cameras high-speed cameras, underwater cameras, infrared cameras, high-speed underwater infrared cameras. We just kind of go in that 
and same thing with uh, cues and AIs. We're going to have a general kind of general purpose thing, and then we'll make these specialized versions of them over time. Right, like and the the general AI, or the the AI as it exists now, being a single celled organism right. as opposed to Trying a to nerve cell or right, right, right. A, yeah, exactly. And so, um, and and then the question is the big question that I have really no opinion about is whether we humans will speciate, and it's very possible that um, with genetic engineering that there will be people say the Amish, my friends, the Amish, who mm -hmm. will decide under no circumstances will I or any of my descendants ever modify their genes. And then you have other people who's like, yeah, tomorrow, I'm gonna- Give me into that thing. Give me, right. yeah, take, take away yeah. my, take away the Alzheimer's gene from I and all mm -hmm. my descendants. The Brian Johnsons out there who right. are quantifying themselves to the nth degree. Right, but, but I'm removing, you know, really, you know, Parkinson's gene. Mm -hmm. I don't wanna have it in me or my kids, just take it out. And so over time, we might have two different or more species, we don't know. And then the AIs are, again, as I said, artificial aliens um, and, and we'll make more of them and they'll work alongside of us. And that's, to me, the reason why I'm optimistic is I believe that there are problems that we have right now, both in science and in business or culture that we, our own minds may not be able to solve. It's like quantum gravity, whatever it is maybe our human minds by themselves can't solve that. But working with minds that we make, mm -hmm. we may be able to solve- Sophisticated interns. Sophisticated interns <laughs> yeah. and co-pilots. We together, we can, we can figure out some of these things um, um, to, to, to solve. And, and that's, so I, I look at a future that's filled with thousands of different kinds of AIs Maybe there's maybe we speciate or not. Who knows? And um, that that world is so. There's not this sort of one big godlike mm -hmm. AI that's kind of afraid of. But instead, we have this. They're like machines. We have we we don't have one big machine. We've got a lot of machines. And it's like, how do you feel about machines? Well, which machine do you yeah. mean? My dishwasher. The dishwasher or, or the this, car or whatever yeah, it is. Like, how do you feel about AI? Yeah. It'll be completely ridiculous. It's like, well, which AIs are you talking about? Mm -hmm. So I think. Um, and, and that kind of a, that's a protopia. Yeah. <laughs> that's not utopia, that's a protopia. Right, protopia, the product of, of human agency and, 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 and innovation uh, with a optimistic bent to it towards progress and you know, positive, a positive, better world. The pro comes from proceeding forward, the progress, prototyping, and the pro versus the con. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's lots of, of that. And um, the idea is, is that, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's like now, but a little bit tiny better. Right, a little <laughs> bit. I think there's a, a misguided sense that people could get that, that your perspective on technology is, is steely and cold, but in fact, it's quite the contrary. I think you have a very profoundly spiritual relationship mm -hmm. to, to all of this that I think is fascinating mm -hmm. that, that I'd like to explore. And maybe a way into that is, is something you mentioned earlier, which is the fallacy of the heroic yeah. single inventor, this idea that, you know, the Einsteins of the world or, mm -hmm. um, you know, these singular people mm -hmm. that we look to who pioneered certain technologies and, and kind of putting the lie to that, to that myth and understanding that there are kind of tectonic plates at play here 
where if that person hadn't done it, there was somebody right on their heels right, that right. could have done it. And the idea that that these sorts of ideas are are kind of percolating in the mm-hmm. collective super consciousness mm-hmm. of, of of humanity and, mm-hmm. and and maybe even broader than that. So talk a little bit about that because I think this is super interesting. Yeah. So so there is there is scientific evidence and academic evidence that this idea that most inventions, the norm is to be invented at the same time independently by a number of people. And when you look at it, it's kind of shocking the numbers that will come up with of simultaneous inventions in the past. And of course, that's why we have a um, patent office today is to kind of adjudicate mm-hmm. that because um, multiple people even, even today are inventing the same things. And um, of course, the other thing that's happened recently, I'd say in the last 150 years is that there's very few single inventors, almost all great things have teams of people right. necessary at this point. And so, um, so the sol- solo genius, it's you just, know, idea is it's just yeah, solo genius, and even the solo villain is a Hollywood trope. This idea of the mm-hmm. person in the cave or on top of the mountain who's got all this technology right. that works on the first <laughs> time, and it's like they're by themselves. It's, <laughs> it's like, come on, you know, right here, right. you've got five guys just trying uh-huh. to keep the IT going for this place, and so, um, so that solo thing is just wrong. It's, it's we're a very communal thing, and we're becoming more mutualistic as we go along as a society, we're much more dependent on each other for everything. And that's my idea of the technium, which is that even technologies require other technologies to live and operate. And that that system of all the technologies connected together is has an agenda itself, has a has a impulse or a, uh, a tendency, and that's mm-hmm. the technium. And I think that this idea that, that um, um, it is, a, we're a much more mutualistic Society and technologies are is is um, is important for us to understand, uh, and then one of the I think it works against one of the worries that people have of the rogue villain, the you know the, the individual who can unleash smallpox or bioengineered weapon or other things, and it's it's the fact that these technologies are becoming more complicated that that actually is even beyond an individual to do. Again, it's a kind of a fantasy idea, but in my research, um, the power of individuals to do harm has actually not increased through technology because the technologies constrain that because they're much more mutualistic and social. You just need a lot more people to get things done. Mm. So that's, again, another reason for optimism. But I do want to say one thing about the... mm, we'll call it the spiritual component of technology. My um, my understanding of both the origins of life and going through the unveiling and unrolling of life on this planet and this creation of minds, I think, first of all, that it's happened a zillion times throughout the universe. Other, I mean, I, I take it for granted that there are other planetary civilizations and they have something kind of a similar origins and growth, but that um, uh, the basic um, the basic trend, the basic arc that we're going through, that we're following, we, that we're part of, so that, that we're part of something that began at the Big Bang and is running through us and would go on beyond us. And technology is the kind of current form of that that we're that we're involved in and what it does what it gives us what technology gives us is cosmic 
technology from the Big Bang through us is increasing choices and possibilities. I mentioned earlier that, you know, the farmer, the, until a couple hundred years ago, most people didn't have much of a choice about what they did with their mm -hmm. lives. Mm -hmm. They were constrained by the undevelopment to, to be farmers or, or maybe a farmer's wife and to be a mother. And, and those were the only choices that most people for most of human history have had. But we have discovered this new invention called the scientific method, which unleashed a whole bunch of new possibilities that did not exist before. And we're the benefit of that today, you and I. We're doing things that 100 years ago nobody would think would be a job. No one would think would you could survive on doing. And in the future, there'll be people doing things that we would not believe would be possible today. And, and, and I think what that means is, is that um, the story I like to tell is, is to imagine uh, Mozart having been born before anyone had invented the piano or the symphony or anything like that. Mm. Say he was born 2,000 years ago that his, his musical genius would be totally lost on us. We would never get to share it. Um, and and that, that's a shame to us and to him. And then there's imagining Van Gogh being born before we invented oil paints or, or Hitchcock or Lucas before we invented the cinema. So each one of these is our inventions have enabled that genius to be, um, to flower and to be shared, benefiting both us and them, and that means that today, somewhere in the world, there's a Shakespeare who has been born, and she's waiting for us to develop the technologies that would allow her genius to be shared and enjoyed and benefiting us. So we have a moral obligation to keep inventing these things, and, and the moral obligation to get the primary technologies of clean water and education and everything else that also enable that, and so, for me, we're on a grand journey of trying to open up the possibilities to allow that every person born and yet unborn would have a chance to develop their genius, to become the only, and to share that with us as a benefit. And that's, that's the big story that I think we're about. And then, you know, in that process, when people were making things, they're making something new and they can seem like they're just worked into the capitalist to consumer business of making something new that doesn't work. But in fact, they're taking part in this great arc of trying to open up the possibilities of the universe to the people mm -hmm. on this planet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a beautiful sentiment. You can't help but think, well, I have two thoughts. You can't help but think of what genius was lost or squandered right. because the, we didn't. We had not developed the appropriate outlet right, for right. the expression of that particular right. genius over the course of human history, and then secondarily to that, uh, this notion of 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 collective consciousness of almost a hive mind, mm -hmm. right? Like we're all participating. Uh, on some level, mm -hmm. in the gestalt of mm -hmm. forward motion in the generation right, of these right. new technologies without really understanding the context or mm -hmm. or the the broader kind of macro mm -hmm. role that we're playing we're like ants like you know moving you know along right, right, as right. we're digging our ant you know anthill or whatever but right. we have no awareness of you know the broader the broader right, game right. at play and yet it is sort of unfolding naturally as if there was some sort of divine 
plan right, at right, play right. or greater intelligence that we're you know consciously unaware of. Absolutely, and and I would like to add one other spiritual dimension to that. Maybe coming back to the advice book, and that is that um, I think at the heart of my advice is the fact that this long arc, this generative thing of increasing possibilities of the self-organizing dynamic that it has another attribute, which is a, a paradox at its heart. And that for whatever reason, the way the universe kind of works is that it's generous at its foundation in terms of it producing things and its abundance and its improbability. And that generosity is captured in this paradox of our own human situation, which is that the more you give away, the more you get, which makes no logical sense whatsoever, but it's so reliable that you can live your life based mm. on that. And that that sense of, um, of being able to give away, knowing that you'll get it is the foundation of all artistic creation and the best habit to have because you need to produce a lot. You need to give away a lot and keep making things in order to make something great. You have to make a lot of bad stuff. And if you are confident, excuse me, that there's more where that's come from, that you can keep giving that away. And that's how you arrive at your understanding of yourself is that it's, it's, a, it's a generous outpouring and that you can rely on that, that, that you can rely on the fact that people are going to treat you well if you assume the best of them. You can rely on things getting better because we're trusting the future generations. So there's, there's a sense in which um, a lot of my advice about how to behave is based on this premise that at the heart of this long arc in history of creating more um, possibilities is, is a generosity that we can count on. Sure, and I think that's beautifully articulated and I'm certainly uh, you know, somebody who, who has experienced that myself mm -hmm. and would agree with you wholeheartedly. Um, I think with respect to the, the piece around innovation and technology, where it becomes sort of problematic or challenging is is around the idea of whether these innovations are are extractive or mm -hmm. regenerative or or sustainable, right? And we have a long history of producing innovations that seem to benefit us, but ultimately long term are too extractive to be sustainable and are wreaking havoc on our planet and creates this tension between progress and this ticking clock uh, where we are quickly depleting the resources of our planet and not respecting it uh, you know, adequately. And so the question becomes, can we pivot away from extractive technology to you know, at, a, at a minimum sustainable technology or perhaps more laudably sure. regenerative technology? So where, do you, you know, where, where does your mind sit around how we make that pivot? Because I think we're, living in, 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 in a world in which the systems that we have created have erected um, a misalignment of incentives that drives us towards the extractive model. Yeah, uh, this goes back to, I think we have a lot of choice we, and particularly in the politics of things that is a choice that we can make or not make. And I think we have not yet made any technology that we can't make greener more appropriate, but that's a political will choice. That's a choice. Right. So and technologically, political will is a is a big right. sticky wicket problem. Technologically, 
we we know what a lot of the solutions are. We there's two kinds of problems uh, in my mind. There's there's the um, tractable problems, problems that we know how to solve but just have to choose to, and then mm -hmm. problems that we have no idea how to solve. Most of these climate ones are in the first category, where we know what most of the solutions are, and so that's just, that's will a political will of choosing to to do those. You know, and we 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 know that. If we electrify the current existing energy system, I mean, we, we can consume exactly the same amount of energy, but electrify it, we can uh, reach 50% of our climate goals by electrifying all the stoves, electrifying all vehicles, electrifying all heating, electrifying all transportation, electrifying everything. Just that alone will get us halfway there to the current goals. And so we know how to do that. Electric mm -hmm. cars, all kinds of heat pumps. And it's the will, the political will to, to do it. So um, I would say that that's a category one problem, which is good because it means that we know how to solve it. Right. We have the technology, we have, we the, have technology. the solutions, have but the it solutions. almost, it makes it more frustrating <laughs> that we can't implement those technologies. Like we're in our own way. Right, because of exactly. the systems that we ourselves have erected that right. are preventing us from taking advantage of, of knowledge that's accessible already. Right, and so one of my bits of advice <laughs> from the book is that you can't reason someone out of a opinion that they didn't reason themselves into. Mm -hmm. So the thing about it that, that we're kind of confronting is that people, unlike say the AIs are not just very logical. They often, they're very emotional. They, they arrive at things for not logical reasons and um, they inherit views. They have cultural standards and norms that they absorb even unconsciously. It's just, so, so, so we're very, very, very complicated and we have to kind of operate um, at other levels to, to change our minds mm -hmm. and, um, People who like me, who like to think, think that if we can change how people think, um, they'll change their minds. But that doesn't <laughs> work very well. No, and we have the <laughs> added, you know, problem of people being motivated by their own self-interest. Yeah. So, again, incentives. Yeah, it, yeah it, it, and that's true. That's human nature. We're gonna. So, so you have to. Um, yeah, you have to make it work. And that's we're seeing some some change in electric cars. And so electric cars, the reason is, is that they're just better cars. Forget about everything else. Mm -hmm. They're just superior cars in every way. And that alone may help them come about and become the norm. Right, but then we have the downstream extractive, uh, you know, practices in terms of mining and minerals, et cetera, to create these batteries that, you know, right. it's sort of like, for every new solution, there's a new problem yes, that we have to address. Absolutely, and, and, and my protopian viewpoint acknowledges that, that, that most of the problems we have today are caused by the technologies of the past. All the problems that we're gonna make in the future are gonna be made by the technological solutions that we have mm -hmm. today. And so you say, well, you know, what's the point? Well, the point is, is that actually we keep increasing the, the possibilities and choices that we have. 
Okay, that's, that, that's what we get out of it. So I agree with the technological crit critics who say that, that um, um, you know, we, we keep increasing the, the number of problems, but um, where, I, where I differ is I think the solutions to the problems made by technology is not just personal virtue, it's actually new technologies mm -hmm. who themselves will have new problems. But um, that is the problems that propel. Their problems are just opportunities in disguise. And right, so I mean, I, theoretically, I'm in agreement with you. I, I get tripped up a little bit by the ticking clock of, of yeah. environmental degradation. Like how much time do we actually have to solve these problems before we you know, eclipse a certain you know, point at which uh, you know the 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 global kind of climate crisis becomes so untenable as to be irreversible. Like that's right. you know we really are up against that right now, and so there's a certain urgency to this that um, I think needs to cattle prod us out of the theoretical mindset into the the truly practical application mindset. Right. Yes. Um, and and that. Unfortunately, is is going to be a very hand wavy deadline because of our our, our ignorance, particularly at the right. planetary scale. One of the things that we discovered, not just through climate, but um, if you ask any question of the Earth uh, of our society at the level of the planet, the answer is we don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I was involved in trying. It was a failed attempt to try and do a survey of all the species on the, our planet because we don't know. We don't know to, a, I don't know, I would say to maybe 50% of what the actual numbers, we, we haven't even identified all the living species on this planet, which is like a, it's like crazy. And so, um, uh, so if you ask any kind of question, it, it, the one we know about the most is population. And even that, I think we're 10% off either direction. Mm -hmm. and, and we're constantly revising even now the projections of our own human population and um, one of the things I am concerned about is the coming population implosion after we reach our peak and we don't have agreement on when that is, but it's probably within uh, less than 50 years. And so, um, and that's the thing we know the most about at the planetary scale. And so our ignorance about our own planet, what's going on and what's happening right now is, is phenomenally great. And um, that's one of the first places that we should be Working on to to you know stabilize the climate. Mm -hmm. Not to mention all of that being exacerbated by uh, a, a denigration in the global conversation yeah. and you know a sense of of decorum in how we problem solve. Right. As we you know move towards what could what many consider to be this post truth world that's being exacerbated by you know social media algorithms and information silos that are making communication and problem solving more difficult, which is of course another unintended consequence of technological innovation. That's right. And so, um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're moving, whether we want to or not, whether we acknowledge or not to becoming a more planetary society. And that disturbs people both on the left and the right they go crazy over this idea of a, of a global governance, and um, yet we have a global planetary problem that requires global cooperation. Mm -hmm. This un, not going to happen otherwise, and so, and so that to me, that's a new phase of our civilization that we're moving into. This planetary 
wide level of um, whatever it is that we're making. We don't even have names for it. And, and that is um, truly a frontier for us as a species that only happens once in the planet's life when you have this knitting together of a planetary civilization. It only happens for the first time once. And so um, that's what we're moving into. And I think um, we don't have good language, good vocabulary. We don't have good notions. We don't have a good role model. Um, it's a truly a frontier. Yeah, but unbridled optimist that you are. Right. <laughs> undaunted. It's gonna be fantastic. It's gonna be amazing, right? <laughs> yes. Okay. Because uh, the alternative <laughs> is what? <laughs> right, okay. But, uh, you know, I don't know. Maybe I'm injecting a little, try to, a little realism into this. I don't know. I don't wanna, I don't wanna like, you know, rain on your, on your parade. Well, I the, wanna be an optimist. I'm like, Kevin, not everybody can be no 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 not everybody optimist. can be an optimist okay because we're in a speeding car as you mentioned earlier yeah. and in order to turn you have to have brakes there have to be some people who are braking it who are to, to, to be able to turn uh-huh. I so you're the guy I'm saying the engine it's going to be amazing I'm the engine and I think we need to have a really the engine <laughs> has to be more powerful than the brakes to keep uh-huh. going forward so I'm I'm glad that there are people who are trying to brake it because we need them okay but my role is to keep making the engine go more powerful as we can go forward. I got you. Okay. Um, I got you. All right. So you're talking about the global sort of conversation that we need to have to solve these big big problems. I want to I want to take that down to the very local. You mentioned uh, the Amish earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you, this is a community of people uh, that you've spent quite a bit of time with. You're sporting an Amish beard. You're so, did the Amish beard come before your before. immersion in the community? Yes, before it did. Why yeah. is that? I just, just uh, when I grew a beard right after high just school, style. I, the mustache just drove me crazy. Uh-huh. I just could stand it. So <laughs> okay. I shaved it off, and then I discovered, oh, the Amish do that. Maybe they're my brethren. And that's but, your thing. Um, but then later on, when I became more interested in technology, I became more interested in the technology. I mean, the Amish, and I went to start to visit them. And the first time when I rode my bicycle across the U.S., I would visit them, and I was I had one major question, which is how do they decide what technologies to use or not? And it was a it's a very interesting conversation because they have trouble articulating that it's so culturally kind of embedded that that they haven't really thought about it mm-hmm. in a kind of a curious way. But that was my main question, and I. And I decided that they had some lessons for us outside about our own use of technology. Mm-hmm. So that's a, a, a culture that's a mystery box to most, most people. people. Yeah, we look at it, and you know, we're we're curious. We sort of you right, know right, right. glance at it like we're glancing at a, a, a car accident as we're driving down the right, freeway right, right, without right. really understanding what's actually going on. But you have spent a lot of time with these people. Right. And what's fascinating is you've extracted certain principles around living that mm-hmm. are instructive. So talk a little bit about that. From the Amish, you mean? Mm-hmm. So the Amish, um, okay, so, so, so there's a stereotype of the Amish is they don't use technology, which is incorrect. They use technology, but they have, um, they're very careful in selecting which ones they use. And they're always, not always, but they are gradually changing that mix. And then thirdly, the mix of what the Amish use is really governed parish by parish, sect by sect. Decentralized. It's, it, so, so, so it's not uniform. 
And the ones that are most liberal, we say, about the use of technology are the ones in the heartland where the Amish kind of were centered and began. And some of the more stricter ones are at the outer edges of of, of that upstate mm-hmm. New York and in Indiana. And so, um, um, so it varies. But the general principle that they use is they have two main criteria for deciding whether to adopt technology in their lives. The first one is, will this technology help me to strengthen my family? And the goal or the, the evidence for that is they want to be able to spend um, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, every meal with their children until they leave. That's their goal. So that means they want they have one room schoolhouse nearby and the kids come back for lunch. It means that the they do business in their farm in the backyard or they have a little shop in their backyard. Mm-hmm. That's their ideal. And if they have technologies that helps them do that, they'll use it. So I have some old order, my, uh, old order Mennonite friends with a horse and buggy, the bonnets, suspenders, the whole thing. But they have in their barn in the back, they have a CNC milling machine, computer controlled milling machine running on electricity from a diesel. And the 14 year old girl in the bonnet is running the CNC machine, okay? Because it keeps them on their family. And the second criteria is, does it help uh, and breed our community as a community? So the reason why they have a horse and buggy is that the horse can only go 15 miles in, in any direction. So all their shopping, doctors, whatever it is, it has to happen within 15 miles. Mm-hmm. So they keep everything in that community. The priority, the real focus, uh, the locus of that decision-making is, is it making our community stronger, more, interconnected, more intimate, right. or is it fracturing it? Exactly, and so when a new technology comes along, they have Amish early adopters. And they're all usually guys and they'll have like cell phones. And they'll they're say, like beta I, testers. Uh, so yeah. I need a cell phone for my business. <laughs> okay. And so the bishop says, okay, Ivan. Interesting. Okay, Ivan, um, you can have a cell phone, but you've got to keep it um, in the shed. Oh, wait, you can't have it in your house. And um, you have to solar charge it. And we're gonna be watching you and your family to see if this is making you stronger as a family man. If this is, if, if you're, and if you're actually more contributing into the community. Mm. And if you're not, you have to be willing to give it up. Mm. And so Ivan tries it out and um, they say, oh, they discover something about the phone is that his wife uh, wants one because her sister is now been moved away to a place in Indiana and they wanna keep the family in touch. So basically the Amish are adopting the flip cell phone. Interesting. Because all the evidence so far has been that it strengthens their ability to have communities um, move apart and live in different areas because their land gets too expensive in one area. And so, and the, and, the, and the family business is better for that, so they can keep in the backyard. So they're saying yes to the cell phone, flip, flip cell phone. Hmm. Now, Ivan has a new smartphone he's wondering about. Right, like that becomes very, diff, very sort of challenging right. quickly because obviously you can go on the internet and perhaps learn right, right. more efficient ways of farming that will increase sure. your yields yeah, or yeah. other tools that could help and the bishop make has, the has, community stronger. Right, right. Or you can go down a Twitter, 
Twitter rabbit hole right, right, and right. you know, like, you know, spend all your time staring at your screen and, all of a sudden. And the bishop has heard these arguments, <laughs> and so they have um, they have Amish computers now, which are um, computers that um, just do spreadsheets. They they don't are mm. connected to the internet because they discovered that mm, spreadsheets are really handy if you're running a business. Um, and then they have, they do have uh, some of them are experimenting with online, where they have like parental controls, that are public and shared and whatnot, so they can go to certain sites, or they've been using it as public libraries. So I, I've been meeting this guy, gave me his card, for his website, and it's like if he's making barbecue, um, metal barbecue um, stuff. I said an Amish website. Well, I use, I, said, I just get it at the library. I go wow. to the library to pick up my um, mail, whatever it is. So it's out of our home and, and it's at the public library. So that's one solution. Right. Um, that's fascinating. You know, and, and what comes to mind for me in, in thinking about this is again, another tension, the tension between the solutions to our biggest problems lying in technological innovations right. and, and really investing in that. And on the other, on the flip side of that, uh, a, a hearkening back to a simpler time. Right, and right. when you think about food systems and the impact of factory farming and monocropping uh -huh. and soil degradation, et cetera, we're seeing this emergent uh, movement around regenerative agriculture, sure. right? Which is in some ways a, a throwback, right? It is a recognition of a more ancient practice that is that is more beneficial for the planet. Right, right. Um, that that is kind of exciting in terms of how we're rethinking right. how we feed the planet, sure, sure. et cetera. Um, I'm not sure it's something that can scale to the level of feeding everybody on the planet, but I can't help but think how cultures like the Amish, right. the Mennonites, et cetera could participate and be at the kind of forefront right, of right. these types of movements. I feel like yeah, they have yeah. a lot to contribute yeah. in that regard. The Amish are really big in dairy farming because no ordinary with English farmer, they call them, wants to bother with. It's just too much effort, too much hand labor. And the Amish still have a lot of big families and the young kids are instrumental in their workforce and they're still doing dairy. But I joke with them that, um, I think they're gonna be among, I think eventually they're gonna accept the robot milker, mm. which are amazing and would enable them to continue um, expanding their, their dairy business as the other English farmers to give it up one by one, which is happening very fast because it is very, very labor intensive. So I think that might be again, a kind of a weird little thing where some high tech stuff in, in AI robotics can help the Amish. Um, there's a thing called precision agriculture that's enabled by AI. So if you imagine kind of like a big tractor with uh, outstretched arms, it goes down the rows and rows of lettuces and the, um, the, there's a camera, camera eyes in all of the little rows and using AI, the tractor, we'll call it, can identify individual lettuce seedlings by number. It can recognize it. Oh, this is, uh, you're, you're 2152A, I, I was here yesterday, mm. and it can give the exact, it can appraise its health, give you the exact amount of water and nutrients or whatever it needs based on that individual seedling using GPS and everything, it remembers it. And so 
It has millions of these that is tending individually. Wow. That is something the human farmer would love to be able to do, mm -hmm. but can't. And yet this precision agriculture machine, which is being driven by AI, is, and that reduces the amount of, of pesticide, or fertilizers and water needed per plant because it's just giving exactly what that plant needs. Interesting. That's how AI it, it can transform this kind of of um, agricultural revolution that we want. Yeah. Wow. Um, and did you say that that's something that the Amish are interested in? Well, I can't uh, imagine the Amish are not interested in that. But yeah. the Amish are interested in this milker, the robotic milker. I see. Okay. Because. That's their main cash right now for most Amish farmers uh -huh. is, is the dairy business because it is um, very labor intensive. It's working with animals which they love and it needs the kind of hands-on stuff. But this, the thing about milking cows twice a day, so here's the cows actually decide when they get milked. That's the beauty of it. They're not being forced. Mm. It's, uh, it's the cows are happier because they decide when they wanna relieve and they come in and get milked automatically and move out. That's like, that's, everybody's happy. Cows are happier. There's more milk and the farmer doesn't have to get up at 5 a.m. and go on vacation every once in a while. That's you know, huge. You know what would be better? What's if we that? just all stop drinking milk, well, we don't need to. Well, yeah. <laughs> that's another, well, that's another, that's another thing, yeah. Um, switching gears a little bit. You're somebody, and again, going from local now back up uh -huh. to global, you're somebody who spent a tremendous amount of time in China, kind of we're coming full mm -hmm. circle here. Um, are in Asia and, and in particular China. You visited right. China many, many times. Mm -hmm. um, My wife is Chinese. Your wife is Chinese. China is very interesting right now. What's happening there? Yeah. And I feel like uh, it's 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 a it's a culture and a place um, that the Western world doesn't fully understand. Mm -hmm. So help me understand what mm. we need to know about China. <laughs> um, maybe where our thinking is is sideways on this, mm. what we should be focused on, what we shouldn't be worried about, et cetera. Wow. Um, I mean, it's a big question. That's obviously, a big question. But like, like, you know, yeah. China is, uh, you know, is- What should we think about the US? Um, so um, first of all, I would say several things. One is I would have had a more confident answer just three years ago before COVID when I was going, living there constantly, I felt I had a pulse on the country and I felt that um, right now I feel blind because I haven't been there and things are changing very fast. Since before COVID. Before COVID. I was, I was there right before COVID my last time. And um, um, so something has shifted and, and I don't have a good sense of what that is right now. So I would say, I would kind of preempt with that, that I feel less confident about that. The thing I would say, and it's still true, is that almost anything you can say about China is true somewhere in China, right? I mean, it is mm -hmm. so vast and right. there is more diversity in China than within the US between California and, and Maine. I mean, it's really vast. But one of the things that people don't appreciate that I will, I will mention is that, um, Part of the genius and greatness of the US was it's built on an immigrant experience of people coming from all over the world, bringing together that mix up and mash up, that kind of um, hybrid vigor of produced by having people from many different backgrounds try to contribute and make and be unleashed. And that ha is happening in China and it has been happening, but the immigration is all internal. So you have people mm -hmm. from very disparate, from Yunnan, from Qinghai from Guiling coming together and they speak indecipherable languages to each other. 
they're, except they have this common language, not English, but Mandarin. But at home, they're, there are languages and backgrounds and traditions that are completely foreign to each other. Right. And so they're all coming into cities, the young people, mixing it up and having this immigrant hybrid vigor that we have experienced in the US. And that was really what was going on for a very long time, to, I mean, for the past 10 years. And um, that has been really very, very productive and tremendously energetic. And you have cities like Shenzhen where most of the stuff that we're using for electronics is made. Shenzhen uh, in the 80s, okay, so that's maybe uh, 40 years ago, 30, 40 years ago, was a fishing village. And now it's a city bigger than New York City. And it means that every single person in that city, nobody was born there. None of the people in Shenzhen, 13 million, 15 million people were born in Shenzhen. They're all immigrants, they're all mm. coming people out. And it's the youngest city in the world. Because they're all, everybody's young there. So it's the youngest, hippest city in the world. And they've built brand new opera house and library. It's just, it's a brand new city. The size of New York and the scale of New York, that's brand new. So there is, no matter what happens in China politically, there is a momentum and a hustle and an ambition that I don't think is going to be squashed by no matter what happens, uh, whether, whether they overthrow things, I don't know. But um, I'm just saying that there is a huge um, desire, a huge collective moving forward that's not going to be stopped. And I don't know where it's going, but I'm saying the, the pressure, the volume, the intensity of that is hard to appreciate, but we, it's not going to be stopped by... Mm -hmm whoever's president or whatever the party's in, in, in power. It can certainly be diminished or demodified, whatever, but it's, it's really a billion people on, on the march. And we have to kind of acknowledge that. And so um, I think that's one thing I would say. The other thing is I asked a lot of the young people in China constantly um, who their heroes are, what their dream was besides getting rich. And the answer was zero, zero, no heroes and no dreams of what they're going to do. So they're racing at a thousand miles an hour forward, but they don't really know where they're going. That's very strange. They don't. What so, do you make of that? So, so I would go into dorm rooms, which in the U.S. would at least have posters of things, some something that they like, that they're hoping for, you know, bands or something cool, whatever, something that would give some idea of what their interests were. There's, there, there are none of those in China. I, 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 it means that um, they're ripe for uh, a new religion. There's no holy scripture, there's no constitution, there's no sacred texts, there's nothing to guide them. So, there, so that means one is it's a possibility that could be some weird thing, a belief thing that would go through that many people would follow. Um, it means that I think they're hungry for a vision of where they want to go. There's been a whole thing of the China dream now, trying to get it going, but it, I don't know what it is and I don't think no one else does either. Um, so I would say that, that they're ripe for a belief in something bigger than themselves, hmm. but they hasn't been articulated yet. Right. And is it your sense that that belief when, when it arises would 
sort of challenge the governmental structure or uh, you know create a situation that that you know pits the people against that's if a, we'd have we to make know. a bunch of yeah, different yeah, scenarios and that could be certainly one of them but here, here's one thing I would say about that I, I I would ask these young people in the big banquets and stuff maybe they'd be drinking a lot so let's get some honesty so like um, what's one thing that you all agree here on what's one belief what's one thing you could all agree on that you want and and they they said um almost in unison stability hmm. the cultural revolution and the crazy the insanity of that is still close to their parents went through it and all kinds of stories all different ways um that is so vivid it's like we'll take it's like we'll take almost anything but we don't want another revolution right give me a job something stable right. and they don't want a revolution hmm. so they're not having a revolution right yet. no revolution no revolution soon. yeah fascinating um yes it's it's so interesting and i and, and i appreciate what you had to say about the complexity and, and and diversity of of this you know massive landscape of yeah. a billion people, um, but I can't help but think of the implications of a talent pool one billion people, yeah. you know, deep uh, in a culture in which they've already you know outpaced the rest of the world in terms of manufacturing quality, yep. of course, yep. and and you know what comes next with that, and yeah. you know so, where where we're going to be in ten twenty. Yeah, 30 so they years. have they have great power, and they don't yet have a great dream. Mm. I mean, yeah, so anyway, I mean, that's true for many countries, but um, China's moving so fast and has such a force and a, and a momentum that that could be dangerous or it could be wonderful. Mm -hmm. When you, you cast your gaze forward as a, as a, future, mm. as a futurist, yes. with finger okay. quotes, um, what does the world look like 20 years from oh, now, my 10 gosh. years from now? Do you have a sense of that? Like. This is your this is your jam, Kevin. Yeah, yeah. So, so <laughs> I, I would say several things. I would say it's going to be more more things will be the same than than change. So I think you know ninety five percent of the world in twenty years from now will look like today. And I think most of the changes are not going to be in the physical world. Um, that revolution has already kind of mostly been completed. It'll be much more an intangible thing of how we understand who we are, like this AI stuff, changing our, our beliefs about ourselves and how we connect with each other. So I think it'll be kind of more in the social realm. Um, I think the thing after smartphones are the smart glasses but I've been saying that for right. Way too I mean, long. you were a big VR guy, and you you well in the eighties. Kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so like your been, timeline on that. Yeah, exactly. I've been wrong for you, so long. You've been right about a lot of stuff. <laughs> I would say you you were wrong about that. Yeah, right. So 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 take that. Like you know, I'm just still wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and and um, even lately with Meta's big bet on VR and AR and the metaverse and all of That's that, right. and then as I'm, soon as ChatGPT hit, like nobody yeah. cared about any exactly. Of that, so. So, so I've been wrong before on that, um, uh -huh. but, I, but that's actually, I mean, that's still my answer about what comes after the smartphone. And um, I think that uh, I'm hoping that most gas cars have been replaced and I'm hoping that we have electrified at least the developed countries by then. And I hope that um, 
if we're lucky, we may have the very first glimmers of, of fusion, synthetic solar, which is what it is. Um, and um, uh, I, uh, you know, um, other things I'm hoping, again, the general trend to uh, less violence in the world means that there's less um, conflicts overall on average, and that continues in that direction. Um, and then, you know, the wild card of, of, of China, but there's always India, which is going to exceed China in a number of um, mm -hmm. people. And um, what we're seeing, <laughs> India is the, the diaspora of India is going to be a fundamental thing. As we can see, even in our tech companies in the U.S., um, the percentage of them being led by uh, Indian Americans is phenomenal. And, and that may be one of the great uh, exports of India is technical people around the world. Yeah, and so um, I think there's a there's a huge export of of Indian uh, culture as well. Yeah, exactly. Movies, television, music, right, right. and we saw it at the Oscars this year. And you know, I think right. it's you know that's going to continue. Yeah, the three R's. R R R. Yeah, R R R. You've got to see it. It's just an amazing. I watch these just to understand. Or the three the three idiots. If you haven't seen that, it's a must see. One of the biggest all the Hindi Bollywood movies. So, um, so, so I would say that would be another thing. I say maybe, maybe more of an influence of India on on the world stage. Right. What's a pie in the sky idea though that you're playing around with? Like all of those predictions are fairly grounded, I think. But um, what's what's a more harebrained thought that might have occurred to you where you well, think things might go? That that. Well, yeah. this is again. This is maybe a hope. I'm hoping that we really do have lab-grown meat. Um, uh, available, uh, animal cell based. I mean, mm -hmm. um, cellular, yeah. Cellular, whatever, clean meat. Keep, they keep changing the term. Yeah, whatever it is, that, you know what it is. Um, I'm hoping that that is commercially available in many, many different varieties by then um, as someone who um, doesn't eat mammals. And so um, I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an, an an inevitability. It's just a, it's a cost thing right now. Yeah. The technology exists. It's commercially available right. in restaurants in Singapore in a limited way. It's too expensive, but the technology, like they're they're continuing to iterate on that pretty yeah, yeah. rapidly. And it's just it's just a matter of scale, I think. Well, in, in theory, order. but to me that's a pie in the sky, because I'm interested in not just replicating the existing animals, but actually making up whole new super meats. Um, out of out of uh, extinct animals, is well, that yeah, yeah, right? Let's eat the mammoth. <laughs> this goes back to mammoth your mammoth like your species project, right? Like, right, you, right, yeah, right, you right. want to you want to have a woolly mammoth burger? Yeah, why not? Come on, man. Yeah, <laughs> I'll stick to my plants. Uh, I do think I do think it's it is it is interesting what's happening in that space, and yeah, yeah, there is a, a you know a consumer acclimation uh -huh. uh, phase that we have to go through because people are. Um, I think it, 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 they have a, a certain reaction to that. Yeah, yeah, but I yeah. think over time, we'll 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 go away. But you know, right yeah, now, yeah. Well, I'm, I, ask me. I'm ready for mm. it, and, I, and I'll pay a little bit extra for it. So I'll be one of the first customers. And I have been trying them in the in the Silicon Valley ones. And oh, have you tasted it? Or I've tasted several, but not not actually the 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 beef or the mammals. I've tasted fish, and. Um, Cheese, milk products, mm. but not um, the actual meat. Um, and and hamburger is easy to do because it doesn't have the structure. But to make a steak is a right. to mix those two is really haven't been able to do so far. But they're working on it. And 
uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. A lot of money and a lot of smart people yep. are on that problem. Um, what are the things on that note uh, that you think we're gonna look back on, I don't know, 50 years from now, 100 years from now and just, just cringe? Yeah. It may be eating meat might be one of them. Uh, I have another idea which is kind of maybe trivial, but I thought it was very possible, which is that um, it may be embarrassing for us who have names assigned by our parents. <laughs> yes, I, I saw the New York Times article yeah, yeah. where you had a list of these things and that one definitely popped out to me. Because <laughs> it's, it's, it's like arranged marriages, <laughs> it's like, yeah, of course you're gonna be, choose your own name when you're 16 or whatever it is. Uh-huh. Uh, I wish we all did that. Um, and the idea that you have a name assigned by your parents, I think is just gonna be embarrassing. Right. That's that's very interesting. I mean, that I feel like that's a sort of progression or evolution beyond the gender you know, yeah. conversation that we're having right now, right, like right. a natural like, exactly extension right. of that. Yeah. Um, you added to that wrapping food in plastic. That's right. a no-brainer. Um, getting off the summer from school. Yeah. <laughs> we're just going to be educated around the clock. Why not? I uh -huh. went to this one school <laughs> where the teachers were not allowed to teach you anything uh -huh. except how to learn. So yeah, I, I think that's, uh, well, you, you should be taking your vacations when you want to rather than just in the summer. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't mean you have to go to school all year. It just means that you yeah. don't have to take all vacations together. Well, I think these technologies uh, are, are so powerful and our education system is so lagging yeah, right. in terms of acknowledging the power and the capacity for these technologies to revolutionize right. how we learn and what we learn. Like right. we're learning the, the wrong right. things. We're not learning the things we exactly. should be learning. Right. Right. And we're not um, training young people to leverage the best of what technology has to offer in order to really you right. know, right. kind right. of nourish their educations. Right. 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 Exactly, and I have one word, YouTube. <laughs> okay. YouTube is this. That can go both ways. Uh, it's phenomenal, underappreciated the way in which it's accelerating our culture and the role it's playing in education today. And it has great potential to be even more uh, an accelerant. Uh, and I don't think they even know they being at YouTube don't even realize mm -hmm. what they have. And the part of the problem is that unlike a bookstore or a newsstand, we can go in and see what's being covered there's really no way for anybody encountering it to have any idea of, of its depth and breadth. And it's just this vast ocean that is kind of subterranean and people don't even understand uh, the way in which it's um, working on learning and accelerating um, all, every field from brain surgery to uh, science. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's really incredible. Yeah, I, I think we're, we're ripe to see tons more innovation yeah, in the space of education. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and uh, you know, kind of pivoting back to the advice piece uh, before I let you go, I did wanna touch on one last thing, which is this thing that you did a while back where you lived your life for six months yeah. uh, as if you were going to die. Mm -hmm. And this became the subject of a, a This American Life mm -hmm. podcast. So explain a little bit about like what you did, why you did it and, and kind of what you learned from that experience. Um, well, first of all, I told the story on one of the first Amer This American Lives and I'd never told it before. I've never told it as well since. So I would urge people to go yeah, look for we'll it. We'll link it up in the it's show called notes. It Should Have Been Dead. But the, 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 um, 
the short version was that I got this assignment after a religious conversion in Jerusalem to live as if I was going to die in six months and, and actually take it seriously. So I suspected, knew as a healthy 20-year-old that I wasn't probably going to die, but I had to really take it and prepare to do it. And that's what I did. And um, it took six months and I was riding my bicycle across to my end date and I was surrendering the future the entire time and not taking pictures because who needs pictures in three months? And that um, stripping away of my future was really important because when I didn't, when I was reborn on the next day after the six months, I suddenly had my future before me and I, and I realized how important it was to have a future forward, how, how necessary and humane and how inhumane and torturous it was to be stripped of a future. And that kind of instigated my interest in exploring the future and really trying to develop it because I think it's an essential part of being a human being is to have something in front of us. Mm -hmm. Yes, how we contemplate, how we think about the future, how we plan for the future and just conceptualize it really is part and parcel of what makes us human and is part of the motor or the motivation for getting up in the bed, uh, you know, out of bed in the morning and planning how we're gonna live. Exactly, right. And um, we have, in addition to being given these incredible bodies that we're given time and time only moves forward, that is the future. Mm -hmm. And so it's not only do we have this incredible blessing of being able to be put into things that have impact, that we can actually have impact, unlike being intangible beings of light, we have things that we can do and make and get hurt and um, hurt others and help others and build stuff. But we also get the time, we get the arrow of time going forward, knowing that we will have time in a future. And that to me is the great, the great ride that we're on the angels in heaven are weeping to see us squander it. Yes, so take advantage. Yeah, of it. on the on the <laughs> subject of squandering it, I mean, I think the human mind is is you know uh, oriented around conceptualizing the future in in the context of self interest or optimizing uh -huh. self interest, and also isn't great about pondering the future uh, in a long term sense, but yeah. more in a short term sense, and and long termism is something you've thought a lot about, right, is right. something you care a lot about. And I think is something that's also percolating up in the culture and becoming a bit of a zeitgeist thing where more and more people are talking about the importance of thinking about and approaching our problems from an extremely you know, long lens point of view. Right, it's, it's a, taking the kind of a civilizational scale or a generational scale is what we like to put about it, thinking in terms of generations maybe working on something that might not be finished in your own lifespan that might require mm -hmm. generations to complete like a cathedral or a road system or something grand like that. And, um, but even beyond those kind of grand plans, what we want to do is to kind of help people like ourselves um, become um, good ancestors to, to actually have, do something so that in the future they may say, hmm, thank you ancestor for yeah. having started that or done that in the way that most of what we surrounded ourselves here has been built by previous generations and we should thank them. So what can we do to be a good ancestor besides plant a tree? Right, and what is the answer to that for you? Um, 
trying to um, increase learning in the world so that we can unleash opportunities for the maximum number of people born and yet unborn so that they can share their genius with us and themselves. Mm, beautiful. I think that's a, a great place to land the plane for today. I have a million other things <laughs> I, I could have we'll, talked to you about we'll today. To I'd love to have you back. Uh, sure. In the meantime, excellent advice for living wisdom. I wish I'd known earlier is uh, is your new book. Everybody, check it out. This is like the perfect book to just you know basically open to any page and have yep. a thought for the day. Um, I love it, and uh, you're a national treasure. Well, thank you, a global treasure, <laughs> an international a, treasure, a cosmic treasure. Okay, yeah, well, thank a cosmic you. treasure. Yes, uh, <laughs> you're a gift. I, you're you're somebody I've, I've I followed you for a very long time, mm. and like I said at the outset, I was nervous to meet you because yeah. um, I've been very invested in the work that you've done for many years. So it, it really was an honor and a gift to have you here to share with me today. It was my thank pleasure. You. I enjoyed every minute. You're a great interviewer. I just love your presence. Thank you for being you. I appreciate it. Thank you, Kevin. Cheers. Peace. Bye. Lance. Progress. Progress. There you go. (laughs) Awesome. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. I truly hope you enjoyed the conversation. To learn more about today's guest, including links and resources related to everything discussed today, visit the episode page at richroll.com where you can find the entire podcast archive as well as podcast merch, my books, Finding Ultra, Voicing Change in the Plant Power Way, as well as the Plant Power Meal Planner at meals.richroll.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, the easiest and most impactful thing you can do is to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and on YouTube and leave a review and or comment. Supporting the sponsors who support the show is also important and appreciated. And sharing the show or your favorite episode with friends or on social media is of course awesome and very helpful. And finally, for podcast updates, special offers on books, the meal planner, and other subjects, please subscribe to our newsletter, which you can find on the footer of any page at richroll.com. Today's show was produced and engineered by Jason Camiolo with additional audio engineering by Kale Curtis. The video edition of the podcast was created by Blake Curtis with assistance by our creative director, Dan Drake. Portraits by Davey Greenberg, graphic and social media assets, courtesy of Daniel Solis, Dan Drake, and AJ Akpodiete. Thank you, Georgia Whaley for copywriting and website management. And of course, our theme music was created by Tyler Pyatt, Trapper Pyatt, and Harry Mathis. Appreciate the love, love the support. See you back here soon. Peace, plants. Namaste.